Heed my words, Mask One. I bring you a summons from the Avengers. You are ordered to report to our headquarters as soon as possible. I have spoken. two of me and my friend Pete, another Donuts and Dimes production. The podcast where we explore all things the Amazing Spider-Man comic book series. I'm your host, Peter Parker's persnickety pal, Gerald. This episode, we're covering the Amazing Spider-Man annual number three. To become an Avenger. Make room on the crazy train because we've got a brand new Parker pal. Me and this guy go back like four flats on a Cadillac. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only, Booster! Welcome aboard Boost, and as our crazy train grows, so does Spidey's notoriety, because in this annual, the King of Swing from Forest Hills, Queens has been handpicked by the world's greatest superhero team for membership. The Avengers train keeps rolling too, so for a spotlight on the world's greatest super team, check out season one bonus episode, Suit Up. And if we've got superhero guest stars, you know we're gonna have as the late, great Bernie Mac said, a misunderstanding. That's Spidey versus Cap, Spidey versus Iron Man, Spidey versus. Look, it's a six on one with the great one, and before Spidey can even catch his breath, he's got a round two with the biggest, meanest, greenest hero this side of Gumby. Gumby wasn't a Shut hero. you! And we've got me! We've got you, we've got. No further ado, we've got the Amazing Spider Man Annual Number Three. To become an Avenger, guest starring the Incredible Hulk. Somebody's getting punched in the face! Let's swing! Me and my best friend Pete, old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns, kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. The credits. The writing on this one was done by Smiling Stan Lee, layouts by Jazzy John Romita, pencils by Donnie Heck, inks by Murphy Mickey DeMeo, and lettering by adorable Marty, it's in the name, Semek. The cover. The cover of this one sees a midnight blue banner with goldenrod lettering, King's High Special. And beneath this, we've got THE Amazing Spider-Man in Spidey costume red with midnight blue shadowing his name atop spider's webs as usual. And beneath, we've got chaos. We see the mighty Thor, his silver helmet atop his head, golden locks flowing beneath it, blue sleeves his shirt with six symmetrical orbs running down each side of his chest, SJB tights, goldenrod boots and belt, arms bigger than Arnold's, his left hand gripping his mythical hammer Mjolnir as he flies from the background towards the front. We see Iron Man in his red and goldenrod armor swooping in opposite Thor, both arms raised, headed towards the front. Beneath him, we have Hank Pym, Former Ant-Man, currently trapped in a semi-giant form he's taken to calling Goliath, in a very unflattering costume of SJB blue and goldenrod gloves, hero underwear and boots, both fists clenched, his left arm raised, racing towards the front. Stage right. I just want to point out, this dude's got on black sunglasses with yellow tint. There's nothing I like about this Goliath costume. But hey, he took a chance. And stage left, we see the star-spangled Avenger, Captain America, racing forward in his classic red, white, and blue, right hand raised, his mouth agape, you guessed it, 
racing toward the front with that iconic shield strapped on his left wrist. Behind him, one of my favorite Avengers, Clint Barton, AKA Hawkeye, AKA the guy who doesn't miss. He's got on his royal purple shirt, winged mask with embroidered H above his eyes, SJ blue tights and quiver for his arrows. He's not rushing forward, but he's got an arrow knocked in his signature bolt aimed towards the ground, possibly waiting for his moment to fire it towards the front. And finally, in the front, two of Marvel's heaviest hitters in a brawl of brawls. On a gray sphere-like surface, we see Big Green, the Incredible Hulk, and the Husky Powerhouse is working in his purple frayed pants. Clint's in his right arm, he's got our hero, see, Amazing Spider-Man, who has not come to talk. In his classic red and blue, his legs curled behind him, lower back taking the strain of the bear hug he's been put in. He's thrown a vicious left hand across the jaw of the world's strongest man and has his right fist cocked back, ready to let that one go. We haven't even turned the page and he's already on play two of the playbook. What's play two? This! Swing him if you got him. The amazing Spider-Man is working right now. But wait! There's more! Beneath this, we get a red arrow pointing to two of Spidey's greatest tales. Plus, the most action-packed of all the Doc Ock opuses, both in one book for the first time. See why Dr. Octopus has been called the greatest villain of all. Return of Dr. Octopus, unmasked by Dr. Octopus. Thanks to Studio Magic, I'll have both of those tales of 008 at the tail end of this one. So let's get into it. Page one opens to the Amazing Spider-Man and beneath this in a white banner with red and brown lettering to become an Avenger. And beside this in an orange green caption box with purple, black, and red lettering guest starring the Incredible Hulk. And beneath this at an extraordinary executive session of the Mighty Avengers, we find. We see the Mighty Avengers in the midst of bureaucracy. We get a pinup photo of our hero spraying web from his right hand as all around this picture, the Avengers hold court. Hawkeye, all smiles, stumping his fist on a table, says they've looked at the photo long enough that it's time to make a decision. And frankly, he votes yes on the wall crawler becoming one of Earth's mightiest because he digs our hero's style. Told you I love me some Hawkeye. Cap, a stern expression on his face, tells Hawkeye that of course he wants Spidey to join a group because they both have been wanted by the law. He's shady. Goliath, his goldenrod sunglasses on despite being indoors, says Spidey should be carefully tested. But the always stylish wasp, missing from the cover because Silver Age sexism, says she votes no because being a wasp, she has a natural hatred for spiders. Iron Man, turning to Thor, says this is a momentous decision and they can't make a mistake. And Thor, for his part, says Spidey is a mystery to most of them, and they've got to figure out if the golden liability is trustworthy. Let the meeting commence. We turn the page. Into full-on bureaucracy. Goliath says they've got to agree to a test Spider-Man can perform. The Wasp chimes in that Spidey should swing to the moon on his web. What? But if you recall, season one, episode 19, The Golden Liability Redemption Song. Here are me and my friend Pete. We discovered that Captain America is a stickler for Avengers rules. In Avengers number 11, released December of 1964, the Hulk's closest friend and at the time junior member of the Avengers, Rick Jones, tried to cast a vote during an Avengers meeting and Captain America nearly chewed his head off, shouting that Rick knew damn well that as a junior member, he had no vote in Avengers decision making. Called the boy Puerto Rico or the Virgin Islands. You'll get it if you get it. And we see more of that refusal to bend the rules here by Captain America as he says, 
We only test an applicant after we decide we want him. But in Spider-Man's case, there still seems to be some doubt among us. Goliath asks Iron Man and Thor what their positions are, but neither of the heroes have enough information on the old webhead to say. Iron Man says he knows Spidey's always been a loner. Thor has a question. He asks where the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver are, Magneto's daughter and son respectively, but the two are in Europe at the moment, and this is another reason Spider-Man should be a member, Cap says, to shore up their ranks. Thor, tired of going around in circles, shouts that it's time to conduct this meeting with true Avengers discipline, that there needs to be a chairman in charge. Iron Man says it's Cap's turn to lead, and you know Cap's always ready for his moment. He says before they test Spidey, they should learn a little bit more about him. Hawkeye agrees, and he says he's got the perfect hero to speak to about Spidey's character, someone who has fought with and against Marvel's golden liability. He's talking about blind justice, yes! the hornhead, yes! the man without fear himself, yes! Daredevil. In the final panel, the group, crowded around the table, are ready to spring into action in more ways than one. The Wasp, sex positive as always, wants to spring on Double D, wondering if he's as dreamy as people have said he is. Daredevil's a dreamboat, girl, you ain't wrong. Goliath, hating, tells her that'll be enough of that. The team decides to send Hawkeye and Iron Man to find the man without fear. Before completely scrapping that idea on page three, where we find Captain America and Goliath in front of a large golden orange contraption lined with buttons, their backs to us as they poke and prod the device. The device? A high frequency radio signal that Captain America is going to use to send a message to Daredevil in international Morse code. But if you know, Daredevil's a lawyer. Why would he know international Morse code? Is this just a thing that superheroes do back then? Look, it's comic books. Let it go and come on. From off panel, someone asked why they've never asked Daredevil to join the team. But of course, bureaucracy. No team member has ever proposed Daredevil join. Either way, a short time later, as the famous man without fear patrols the city's rooftops. We find DD in midair, arms wide, as fearless as his name suggests in his ruby red costume. His right hand extended towards a cable, the city we know and love beneath him, as the radio waves from the Avengers broadcast fill the air and his senses. Powerful radio waves filling the air. It's a signal to me from the Avengers. Whatever they want must be important. Thus, moments later, we find Daredevil in the Avengers meeting room where the group starts talking like a hive mind villain. We appreciate you coming. To put it frankly, Daredevil, what we're after is information. Yeah, about Spider-Man. We have a request to make. Enter and be heard. Except for the Wasp, who's feeling frisky. Mmm, I hope he's a slow talker. Daredevil, ignoring Miss Van Dyne, gives his honest take on the King of Swing. More than a year ago, we fought side by side against the Ringmaster, and Spidey was as great a partner as one could hope for. More recently, I encountered him again, and he was stronger and more skillful than ever. If he's being considered as a potential Avenger, he gets my highest recommendation. Dee Dee's of course talking about the adventures covered in Me and My Friend Pete episodes Spyonce and the Fleabag and Delusions and Grandeur and Swangin' and Clangin' and Bangin'. Cap, surely impressed, says that's just what they wanted to know. Then, after the sightless adventurer has departed. So Daredevil's gotten out of there. He's got his own things to deal with. And if you are not reading the current run of Daredevil, you are missing out. It is, you can say it, Amazing! In the final panel, Cap, pointing what can only be called a holier-than-thou finger at his team, shouts, I vote that Spider-Man qualifies to be tested for membership in the Avengers. And the team votes. Hawkeye votes yes. Then the Wasp, spider prejudices aside, votes yes as well. Goliath, proud of his bay, votes yes as well. And so says the Thunder God. 
That's five yes votes. The final vote is the always almost villainous Iron Man, as he says. Good, then I'll make it unanimous. The Amazing Spider-Man, a unanimous decision to join Earth's mightiest heroes. And let's be clear, he will bring some much needed star power here in this real world you and I are living in. Most Avengers, Thor aside, didn't have successful solo runs like Spidey was having during this time. In the 616 universe, he may be considered a scrub, but in the Silver Age, in my humble opinion, the Avengers were the scrubs in our real world universe who couldn't move units alone. Think about it. Spidey, Daredevil, the good Doctor Strange, they weren't a part of any super teams because they were pulling their weight in the real world. Again, I could be wrong, but damn near every other hero around this time was clicked up. And if you check their individual numbers, you'd see there was a reason for that. Back to... And so, the quest begins. Four opens to Thor, gripping the leather strap of his enchanted hammer as he hurtles above New York City, shouting in ye old English as he's wont to do, despite being a Norse god. If Spider-Man is anywhere in this sprawling, teeming, bustling metropolis, then by the bristling beard of Odin, by the golden gates of eternal Asgard, Thor shall find him. Others, too, take up the search for Spider-Man, though not necessarily with the same grandiloquence as the God of Thunder. We see Hawkeye on his flying golden motor scooter next. He's rocketing above the city, and he's monologuing, giving the game away. Cap was right. I guess I do kind of identify with that masked web slinger. He's always in trouble with the police or someone just the way I used to be. And yet, I get the feeling that Spidey's a guy you can trust with your last sawbuck. A sawbuck is a $10 bill in slang. Or a sawhorse, just to be thorough. In the final panel, the Golden Avenger Iron Man is rocketing above the city, a large purple whoosh sound effect coming from his jet boots as he monologues, giving the game away? Giving the game away! Since Thor and I are unable to devote full time to the Avengers, Spider-Man could be just what they need, but there's no telling what his answer will be, if we manage to find him. On five, the Wasp and Goliath, known for loving a good crowd reaction, are sauntering down Main Street. There are no Main Streets in New York! Either way, Goliath, stuck at 10 feet tall, and the Wasp, at a little over two inches, are traipsing through a crowd of onlookers filled with blondes, brunettes, redheads, a sandy-haired photographer, and one beat cop losing their minds over Marvel's most spotlight-obsessed duo. Look, it's Goliath. Who's he talking to? Must be the Wasp. There, she's flying around him now. Look at the size of him. It, it's impossible. Move along, Avenger. You've got traffic stalled from here to Times Square. Hey, Seymour, bring me a hunk of paper. I want to get his autograph. What do you mean, how can I tell it's him? How many ten-foot guys do you know? He said he's looking for Spider-Man. Too bad he didn't find him. The picture would be worth twice as much if I could get the mask web spinner in it, too. And speaking of Spidey, just to prove we didn't forget which mag this is, let's visit another section of town. And we finally find the guy who outsells Avengers regularly month to month, perched on a sheer wall of a gray building in his classic red and blue, monologuing something fierce with furrowed buggy eyes. My spider sense is starting to tingle. Something's in the wind. Good thing I haven't any studying to do tonight. I'd better string around and see what's doing. He sprays a web line in the gutter between panels and leaps from the huh. wall in the next before a voice from off panel commands him to stop. Spidey's reply? Wow, I thought I heard all kinds of nutty bags. That's what he said. But never one with a booming voice like that. He sounds like a refugee from a Shakespeare festival. And William Shakespeare was a poet, actor, and quite possibly the greatest playwright to ever live. Full stop. Quoted from Wikipedia. He is regarded as the greatest writer in the English language and the world's preeminent dramatist. He is often called England's national poet and the Bard of Avon, or simply the Bard. 
His extant works, including collaborations, consist of 39 plays, 154 sonnets, three long narrative poems, and a few other verses, some of uncertain authorship. His plays have been translated into every major living language and are performed more often than those of any other playwright. He remains arguably the most influential writer in the English language, and his works continue to be studied and reinterpreted. End quote. Shakespeare married Anne Hathaway at 18, moved to London shortly thereafter, and became a part owner in a playing company between the years 1585 to 1592, and got busy cranking out some of the greatest plays in history. Richard III, Henry VI, Titus Andronicus, The Comedy of Errors, The Taming of the Shrew, Hamlet, Othello, King Lear, Macbeth, all plays that examine the corruption of power in one form or another. My favorite play ever, Julius Caesar, and countless others. Fun fact, I read or listen to Julius Caesar once a year leading up to the Ides of March, and the first and only play I was ever in was The Two Gentlemen of Verona. Boss that I am, I was cast as the Duke of Milan, and still remember my lines. Proteus, I'm very impressed by your attitude and consider you a good man. Plenty good enough for my daughter, Sylvia. That is exactly how I deliver the lines. My hands in my pockets, sweat trickling down my back like a summer raindrop. A tragedy in its own right. Shakespeare's influence on the English language can't be understated. For the English nerds out there, the man mastered blank verse and iambic pentameter. <laughs> Whatever that means. For the hopeless romantics, well, before Romeo and Juliet, nobody believed romance could be a topic for tragedy. Imagine never thinking a broken heart could have a story behind it. 17th century fools! After mastering the rules of literature and playwriting, he threw them all out the window in plays like Hamlet and Macbeth because rules were made to be broken. Quote, the literary critic A.C. Bradley described this style as more concentrated, rapid, varied, and in construction, less regular, not seldom twisted, or elliptical. In the last phase of his career, Shakespeare adopted many techniques to achieve these effects. These included run-on lines, irregular pauses and stops, and extreme variations in sentence structure and length. And, quote, the late romances with their shifts in time and surprising turns of plot inspired a last poetic style in which long and short sentences are set against one another. Clauses are piled up, subject and object are reversed, and words are omitted, creating an effect of spontaneity. He turned soliloquies into plot devices to study people's minds. Later romantic poets tried to mimic his style. Failed. He influenced Thomas Hardy, William Faulkner, Charles Dickens, Herman Melville, 20,000 pieces of music. The Romantic Painters and Pre-Raphaelites? Shakespeare inspired. Sigmund Freud, the famed psychoanalyst? Shakespeare inspired. His use of language helped shape modern English, with phrases such as, with bated breath and a foregone conclusion, being two of the most notable amongst many still in the English lexicon. The man is the Guinness World Record holder for world's best-selling playwright moving upwards of 4 billion copies and is the third most translated author in history behind only Jules Verne and Dame Agatha Christie. Sidebar, just want to point out, science fiction always rules. Back to, in his lifetime, Shakespeare was respected, but because he wasn't formally trained, he wasn't revered. But every year since his passing, he's grown more legendary in the eyes of critics and really anyone who takes time to look into his work. Proof that the only thing history respects out of a storyteller is how well they can tell a story, not the degrees hanging above their heads when they do. Thanks, Wikipedia! I could go into the man's personal life, but seriously, if you heard my rant on Banksy, you know I don't care much for an artist's personal life, especially when they try as hard as Shakespeare did to keep his private. Back to, where was I? 
Oh yeah, Spidey saying Thor sounds like a refugee from a Shakespeare festival. In the final panel, Spidey just landed on a sheer wall stage right, shouts we can wobble his webs and call him shaky, that he's in the presence of Goldilocks, the hippest hammer in the West. What? Thor, standing on the edge of a ledge of a rooftop, Mjolnir raised over his head, has a message for the old webslinger. Heed my words, Masked One. I bring you a summons from the Avengers. You are ordered to report to our headquarters as soon as possible. I have spoken. On six, he points a muscly arm at Spidey as the camera shifts behind him so that now Spidey stays left and continues. You are to be offered one of the highest of honors, an opportunity to be tested for membership in the Mighty Avengers. Spidey, calling the Avengers glamour pants, says if they don't know what the webhead can do by now, he doesn't think he should have to prove it. Thor says that this is standard protocol, that everyone has to go through the trials, that this is the way of the Avengers. Spidey, scratching his skull, replies, But I never said I wanted to be an Avenger. I've always been a loner. I'd better think about it for a while. Thor isn't trying to hear that. He says the Avengers don't just ask anyone to join and ask Spidey what manner of man he is. In the final panel, he points towards Avengers Mansion and starts pontificating. Are you not aware of the obligation a superpowered being has to lesser mortals? Are you not familiar with the glorious record, the noble achievements, which are the shining heritage of Earth's mightiest fighting team? Spidey, taking a seat next to the mighty Thor on the ledge of the building, tells the man to come up for air, that he feels like a captive in a late TV commercial. Thor out here pitching his team, before he starts twirling Yonir above his head, shouting that Spidey may be right, that he shouldn't expect an outsider to love the Avengers like he does, that he's going to give our hero time to mull over the offer, 24 hours to be exact. Spidey, crouched low away from Yonir, is thinking, Phew, that's a I thought he was getting sent to zero me in with that hammer of his. Boy. He sure whips up a storm with that thing. At this point in Marvel history, Thor would fly by whipping Mjolnir around really fast in a circle, then launching it into the air with his super strength and being dragged behind it by the strap. <laughs> because comic books. Let it go. Come on. Back to Spidey begins scaling the building in the gutter between panels as the Thunder God soars away, monologuing to himself that Thor seems alright for someone so uptight, before deciding it's time to switch back to the Goldenrod Kid, Pete Parker, and head home. Thus, a thoughtful youth enters his aunt's modest frame home in Forest Hills a few minutes later. We see the goldenrod kid, Pete Parker, in his SJB blazer and slacks, white collared shirt, the top button open. He is comfy. Entering his Forest Hills home where we find May sweeping the vestibule and style flaring. She's in a purple smock matching kerchief tie and orange dress. As Pete wonders how joining the Avengers would affect the Queen of Queens, May says she has a favor to ask of him. Of course he says, anything at all. May drops the ask. Dr. Prombo wants me to have a new medicine, but I didn't feel quite up to walking to the drugstore. Pete, a look of concern on his face, takes his prescription from May before she can even finish her sentence, saying she shouldn't have to exert herself and he has no problem getting the prescription for her. May, watching Pete walk off with hunched shoulders in the final panel, says she doesn't know what she'd do without the dear boy. While Pete stops in front of his tarp-covered motorbike, thinking, do I have the right to always think of myself when Aunt May needs me? She's old, and them, and I'm all the family she's got. But Pete doesn't know the perks of being an Avenger. She would get to live in Avengers Mansion, be protected and cared for by the Earth's mightiest heroes, with great medical insurance for all the strokes and heart attacks, and have someone around her age to converse with in the form of Jarvis. But wasn't there the whole disassembly? Shut it, you! We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, Infinity, Infinity Page. Page 8. Just in time to witness Pete rumbling down the street on his cherry red motorbike, still lost in thought. And yet, 
If I did become an Avenger, it could mean a new life for me. Even someone like Jonah Jameson would have to treat me with respect. This is not true. JJ hates all heroes. He wouldn't give Captain America himself a pass if given the opportunity. Reaching the pharmacy in the gutter between panels, Pete places a hand on his forehead and leans on the counter, thinking like a man after my own heart. But as a loner, I can pick my shots. Nobody orders me around. Nobody can send me out on a mission when I should be home studying. Or looking after our man. Pete's his own man. He doesn't want to punch a superhero clock at Spidey. But let's be honest. We've seen Spidey in action with a super team in season two, bonus episode, semi-charmed. And all through the way here section, the Avengers were supremely annoyed he was in their presence. They can't see the guy's greatness because he can't shut up and just let his fist do the talking. I still crack up thinking about his comments on the Scarlet Witch. Mainly, plus, she married a robot. Blank stares. One, the Vision is a robot. Blank stares. If I married a robot, you don't talk about me behind my back. And scene. Anywho, there's a reason Spidey rides stag into combat. Mainly, namely, he's annoying. When Mr. Wilson, the pharmacist, tells Pete he'll need a few minutes, Pete says for the man to take his time that he's got a lot of thinking to do. And he does. The camera shifts to outside of the pharmacy where we see Pete's hand on his chin staring out of the window as a man in a lavender suit walks by the shop from stage left to right, gripping the suitcase towards Pete's parked motorbike. If I may have learned that I'm Spider-Man, the shop might kill him. And if I join the Avengers, it might be harder than ever to keep my secret because I'd be more in the public eye than ever. Great points. He grabs a prescription in the gutter between panels and is zipping past the blonde in a full-length coat in the next panel, still lamenting his situation. Rats! Who needed a problem like this? Just when things were beginning to look up for me. I finally got my cycle. The kids at school seemed to be getting friendlier. I thought I really had it made. Finally. Back at home, Pete delivers the medicine to Aunt May, who tells him he looks tired. Popping his collar, Pete says he is, that he's going to his room for a while. But once the door closes behind him, Pete's tossing his blazer onto his bed and monologuing something fierce. Stripping off his button up to reveal his costume top beneath, looking positively heroic, his top lip missing in this amazing action shot, he continues. I must have been given my spider power for a reason. Thor was right. I do have an obligation to mankind. Even Aunt May would understand that if she knew. And so, seconds later. Spidey's suited and booted, web swinging high above the city we know and love. He's made a decision. He's going to the Avengers Mansion to see what their offer is about. Fun fact, I may have mentioned it before, the Avengers Mansion is based off of the Henry Clay Frick House, and I've added a picture of the mansion in the show notes. Either way, Spidey's at 890 5th Avenue Midtown. White Brick Mansion, you can't miss it. Shouting his head off. Here's their headquarters, the townhouse mansion that millionaire Tony Stark provides for them rent-free. What a place. They sure know how to make superheroin pay off. Well, hold everything, world. Here comes Spidey. And then, a scene that shall live forever in the hearts and memories of Spidophiles everywhere. The first official meeting of the Mighty Avengers and your friendly neighborhood web spinner. And on 9, we get a full-page spread of the world's greatest hero meeting the world's greatest super team for the first time. We've got Iron Man stage right, a step behind Captain America who's smiling with his right hand extended, his shield in his left hand at his side. A step behind him, a smiling Hawkeye. We've got Spidey dead center, his back to us, his left hand raised, the Wasp facing him next. Goliath towering behind her, his left hand towards the ceiling, the only person not smiling, he's hating. And finally, Thor, stage left, a smile on his lips, 
as he claps Spidey on the right shoulder with his left hand, and there are caption bubbles everywhere. Welcome, Spider-Man. As acting chairman pro tem for this monthly session, I greet you in the name of the assembled Avengers. And now I'd like to introduce you to the others of our team. If you can't recognize us by Sightcat, then he's not the man we're looking for. Needless to say, I'm Goliath. I want to wish you luck on your tryout with us, fella. Personally, I hope you make it. And I'm sure the watch echoes my sentiment. Don't lay it on too thick, Blue Eyes. Spider-Man will never be my favorite person, but I'll reserve judgment till later. The name's Hawkeye, mister. And as far as I'm concerned, you're a shoo-in for approval. Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch couldn't be with us today, but that won't affect our decision. Even without them, we have a quorum, which is all we need for official actions. I bid you welcome, Spider-Man. We meet as strangers, but tis my hope we shall soon become fighting allies. Spidey, not used to being greeted with this much love by people in costumes, says the absolute wrong thing, of course. Well, you all sure come on strong, but he's not wrong. On 10, Spidey used to swing in first, asking questions last, asked a question about swinging first. Okay, I'm ready for my test. Who do I fight? <laughs> my man wants all the smoke right away. Hawkeye, as game as it gets for a man with no powers and his bow nowhere in sight, shouts that he wants first dibs, that he's been hoping for some action around here. Cap, separating the two with his arms wide, shouts that this isn't that kind of test. The group make their way to the Avengers round table and except for Goliath, Cap, and Spidey, take seats. Spidey, still unconvinced, says that the Avengers are a fighting team. What other test could there be? Like, bro, I came here to kick ass and chew bubblegum, and I'm all out of bubblegum. They've never seen the Golden Liability playbook. Cap says they were discussing it before Spidey arrived. Iron Man adds they haven't made a decision on it. Goliath, hovering over the Wasp, adds, That's what happens when you try for a unanimous decision among six independent thinkers. Except that these six independent thinkers voted unanimously to allow Spidey to go for membership. So, gotta call bullshit. Hawkeye asks what they do now. Thor's like, um, verily decide on the test. Wasp, reading the room, whispers to Goliath that Spider-Man is starting to look angry. Iron Man, jabbing a finger at Spidey, gives the webhead a reason to be salty. Look, why don't you step out of the room for a while? We'll be able to think up a test for you faster if you're not breathing down our necks. Spidey, reasonably, snaps. Jabbing a thumb at himself, he screams. Now hold it, Shellhead. I'm not some nobody who walked in here hand in hand for a handout. If you don't want me to join, say so. I'll promise not to cry. Thor tells Spidey to shut up and calls him a neophyte. Translation? A novice. Spidey chides himself in his internal monologue, thinking that because he was so worried about Aunt May, he did the one thing he didn't want to do. He lost his temper. The Avengers all spring from their seats in the next panel. Cap and Thor, the only two Avengers who could possibly restrain Spidey, holding him back. Cap orders the webhead to simmer down, while the Wasp lets all her hate for our hero out. I told you he couldn't be trusted. Look how fast he started to flare up. All the kid did was jab a finger at himself, and the Avengers lost it, not Spidey. In the final panel, Cap, still holding Spidey back, tries to plead the Avengers' case. Let me explain how important our tests are. Their purpose is to determine your power, your loyalty, and your ability to think on your feet. Fast. But Spidey isn't trying to hear it. It still sounds nutty. That's I make as good an Avenger as anyone here. Hawkeye, from off-panel, has heard enough. Oh, yeah? Pointing at Spider-Man with a scowl on his face to open page 11, he shouts, I'm the one who wanted to vote you right in, but no webhead is going to try to put the Avengers down, not when Hawkeye's around. And instead of thinking he may have gone too far, Spidey's thinking, Maybe this is the test. Maybe they want me to get mad. Well, if that's the case, I sure won't disappoint them. Translation? It's not that he's gone too far. He hasn't gone far enough. And we got 
action. Cap shouts, look out! As Spidey breaks free of his grip, lunging across the table towards Hawkeye. Ha! Iron Man chimes in. Be careful, stay back. Don't forget his spider strength. Thor, desist! But Hawkeye ain't soft. He tells everyone to stay back. He wants this action. Again, this man's got gumption. His bow is still nowhere to be found. And Spidey's gonna give the man all he wants. Crouched on top of the table now, Spidey lines up Hawkeye's jaw with his right hand out and pressed against Hawkeye's left shoulder and raises his left arm to hammer fist the purple clad Avenger, the elbow of his arm knocking Iron Man back at the same time. Cap throws a hand on Spider-Man's shoulder shouting for Spidey to calm down, telling the King of Swing that he's wasting time. Iron Man shouts that Spidey heard what he said, but Hawkeye, mushing our hero across the face with his left hand, is swinging past his knees. I'm not scared of you, just let me sling an arrow. Why does he think Spidey is gonna let him get a shot off in this boardroom brawl? Goliath grabs Spidey around the waist in the gutter between panels, shouting at the archer. Stay back, Hawkeye, he's a dozen times stronger than you think. Again, it's always a dozen with Stan. And Spidey's realizing now that this isn't the test. Scanning the faces of the Avengers in the room, everybody is pissed. In the final panel, Goliath is sick of the games. Now look, little man, we've been plenty patient with you up till now. Neither your temper tantrum nor your undeniable strength can impress us. He backhands Spidey like the kids came back short off the stroll, sending our heroes jaw north and body airborne. The last position you want to be in against Earth's mightiest, as Thor and Cap wonder aloud if the Spider-Man has what it takes to be an Avenger. Spidey's... <clears throat> We'll see, because Spidey's landed on his feet to open 12. Oh. With green curtains in the background, Captain America trying to hold him back, and the Wasp a step behind the Captain, Spidey shouts, Hands off, you overgrown creep! I ain't coming to be pushed around by anyone! And throws a right cross to Goliath's jaw, sending the giant crashing into Thor. And it's Bedlam. Goliath, calling Spidey Little Man, tells our hero not to start something that he can't finish, as the Wasp, standing by her man, shouts, Hit my guy Hank, will you? I'll show you. Cap, trying to get a handle on the situation, grabs Spidey's arms, yelling at the Wasp to stay out of this. But nobody's listening to the only hero in the room making sense. And Cap's held both Spidey's arms wide open to give the Wasp a free shot. She shrinks down in the gutter between panels and swoops in front of Spidey in the next from stage right to left, hitting our hero with a Wasp thing, square in the chest, shouting she'll gladly stay out of it as soon as she gets Hank's hit back. Fight your own battles, Hank. Hank, what my grandmother used to call Big for no reason. What's the point of being 10 feet tall? You can't fight. You got a person whose power it is to shrink getting your hit back. Get it together. Cap shouts, Hank, stay back. But Spidey's snap. Then sinks it. He judo tosses Cap over <sighs> his shoulder into Goliath, screaming at the Avengers, glory hounds that they are, are not dealing with a cream puff. But Spidey's gotta know better than to put his hands on a one-man hand seem like the Captain of America. The Star Spangled Avenger is back on his feet and the final panel in no time, where he clubs Spider-Man with a double-fisted strike, knocking some sense into the wall crawler, shouting, Don't try that again, mister. Not ever. Now he and Spidey are going at it. That ain't Hawkeye, Spidey. Cap's hands work with or without the shield in him. You better chill. Iron Man agrees, saying everyone's blown off steam, and now it's time to break it up. Thor shouts, I... To battle without cause is folly indeed. Continuing on to page 13 as cooler heads finally prevail. You have proven your courage and your spirit. Now it is time for talk. Spidey, as annoying as ever, says, You mean the next test is a debate? 
four in a syntax that begs to be mocked replied, Do not mock me, newcomer. Such action is most unwise. Iron Man, the only one who didn't try to take a swing at the spider, says he's figured out a test for our hero. The test? The Hulk's been seen in the city. Cap says that's perfect. The Wasp is like, um, can you be more specific? What does that mean? Captain America takes over. His shield back on his arm from who knows where, says they've all been too busy to go after the Hulk themselves, and Spider-Man can bring the green-skinned bruiser to them. Hawkeye says that's a lot to ask, even of Spider-Man. Even through all their beef, he still respects our hero. I like this Archer. Wasp, hating, to Spidey sure to fail. Captain America explains the Hulk is the strongest mortal on planet Earth, that Spidey's not expected to overpower the Hulk, just find a way to bring him to Avengers Mansion. Spidey, all confidence, replies, Shucks! I thought you were going to ask me something hard. Just stay around his cage, Dad. I'll bring him back purring like a kitten. Call this man Dad. Swinging 60s lingo from the King of Swing himself. When the captain tells Spidey not to forget about the Hulk's matchless strength, Spidey tells Cap not to worry, that he's going to tie some webbing around his finger. They walk out onto a rooftop ledge in a gutter between panels, and Spidey, leaping from the ledge, is going to get right to business. Promise not to lean on him too hard when I bring him back, Groom. The Avengers, watching our hero spring into action, talk amongst themselves. Goliath pointing out that they haven't said why they needed the Hulk. They have the King of Swing going after the angriest man on Earth and haven't even told him why past they might let him become an Avenger. When Cap shouts this bit of news out to Spidey, it's too late. But Thor says they can explain later. Right now, the test has begun. Spidey's trying to figure out how to do this little thing. From what I know of old Greenskin, I shouldn't have too much trouble. If he's as dumb as I've heard, I'll figure some way to trick him into defeat. But this kid's got a short memory, because if you recall, way back in ASM number 14, the grotesque adventure of the Green Goblin. That's just deserts. Here on me and my friend Pete, Spidey battled the Hulk in a cave in the middle of New Mexico and came away with what can only be described as a stalemate. When he punched the Hulk as hard as he could, he damn near broke his hand. When he tried to web up the Hulk, the green giant tore through the webbing like tissue paper. So this won't be an easy task, despite Spidey's amnesia. But the kid's got grit and he always commits and he was bit by a radioactive spider. So you can see it. Spidey's on the prowl. Minutes later. We find Spidey sticking to a sheer wall of a New York skyscraper to open 14, the city we know and love sprawling out before him in the midday light, thinking that even with his spider sense, which he's trained on more than one occasion to act as an antenna, New York's still a big city to cover. He heads to a nearby rooftop, shining his spotlight in the dark corners there. No dice. He web swings into the next panel, shouting. If I were the Hulk, I'd have skipped town by now. Especially with the Avengers after me. But a glimpse into the future, the Hulk's taking on not only the Avengers, but the Fantastic Four and the Inhumans at the same time, wrecking them all. The Hulk may be constantly running, but that's only because of the devastation he causes when he sets his feet. Back to... Finally... Hours later, we find Spidey clinging upside down to a sheer wall of a limestone building just above a window where warm yellow light is sneaking through the blinds. He says web swinging is thirsty work, but he can't go to a soda fountain in his costume. Crawling down the side of the building and into the next panel, we see where Spidey decided to go as he stares through the open blinds at the back of the head of the miserable magnate himself, J. Jonah Jameson. So we're at 39th Street, 2nd Avenue, Midtown, limestone building. You can't miss it. JJ's facing us, a lit cigar poking out of the corner of the right side of his mouth, as usual. His powder blue tie loose, top button of his collar open, probably staring at the puzzle that will be the next cover of the Daily Bugle, when Spidey gets right to his favorite pastime, needling the Bugle Boss. 
Hi there, Chunkles. What's the good word? Of course, JJ loses it. That voice! The voice I hate most in the whole rotten world! Spidey, crawling through the window without Jay's permission, flips right side up in the gutter between panels. JJ throws both arms up, fists shaking, apoplectic as they would say. But Spidey puts a hand on his chest, calm as a summer breeze. Please, don't embarrass me with a 21-gun salute or a brass band. Just pretend I'm not even here. When JJ tells him to get out of his office, Spidey starts treating the tycoon of tirades like Lassie telling Timmy someone's stuck in the well, asking if Jameson's trying to tell him something. JJ storms towards his desk and lifts his receiver to his ear, his left arm to the heavens, throwing his head back and is shouting in the background at his secretary on the other line. In this, our panel of the week. Police! I want the police! No consignment! I don't know what their proper area code number is! Blast it! I got Spider-Man in here! No, I don't want the number of an exterminator! Well, Spidey? Well, he's walked over to the water cooler, lifted his mask up past his nose, and poured himself a paper cup of water, having a sip, thinking, Mmm, this just hits the spot. My man is chillin'. A moment before Frederick Fennel rushes into the room, concern etched all over his face, sweating through his tan suit and matching fedora, jerking a thumb over his shoulder, shouting, JJ, a flat just came over the newswire. The hoax was spotted near the downtown Gamma Ray Research Center. Jameson, over his spidey chagrin for a moment, asks what the man's waiting for and orders Foswell to go and get the story. Spidey, pulling his mask back down, thinks that this is just what he wanted to know. That maybe, just maybe, his luck is beginning to change. Great strategic move by Spidey, hanging out at the bugle for information, pretending to come just to harass JJ. The kid's thinking like a detective or a man of steel on the other side of the big two. In the final panel, as JJ puts a hand on Foswell's back, forcing the man out of his office, screaming, If you come back in the handed, Foswell, I'll demolish you! Move, blast it! Spidey, leaping back through the open window, is thinking, Oh, Jonah won't mind me leaving without a fond farewell. I know how sentimental he is. Foswell and Spidey are on the move. On 15, Spidey's arrived at the Gamma Research Center in maybe a minute, chiding Foswell privately for having to use a taxi. The guy won't get here for another 15. A moment before, Uh-oh, the old Spidey sense is starting to tingle. That means danger somewhere below. He descends upside down on a web line into the next panel beside a wall with a large yellow sign that reads, Gamma Ray Research Center. His Spidey sense still buzzing, Spidey's thinking, The closer I get to this alley between the lab buildings, the stronger I feel it. Looks like I finally found my pigeon. Called the strongest being on earth a pigeon. He swings right side up, landing on the ground, and runs smack dab into the Incredible Hulk. That's 1,150 pounds of pure muscle. That's seven feet six inches tall. That's more chest hair than Braun Strowman. And you can't teach that. Both men crouch low. Spidey shouts, Hi, honky boy. Long time no see. Thinking that the man monster doesn't remember him. We get a pink caption box giving us all kinds of wrong information. How about you, Tiger? Remember when they met in Spidey number 10? Stoical Stan. But if you recall, and if you don't, I do, Spidey faced off against the Enforcers for the first time in ASM number 10. The Enforcers? That's BCC, Dr. C.K. Connors. How to plan. Here are me and my friend Pete. And the only thing Hulk Green in that issue was a diminutive Dapper Hands Team Fancy Dan suit. But we all make mistakes. Case in point, the Hulk shouts, Stay away from Hulk. And instead of hitting the bricks, Spidey replies, Sorry, big man. You're coming with me. Do we got? We got action. The Hulk shouts that he's going with no one and clubs a nearby wall with both fists, sending bricks and and dust flying into the air. Spidey, covering his face as the dust surrounds him, 
thanks to Hulk's peeling the building apart like a grape, he's got to move fast. And he does. As the Hulk hurls a pile of bricks towards him, our hero gets dodgy, leaping sideways <gasps> onto the sheer wall of the building, thinking, <sighs> Spidey Speed, I love you. We love it too, Spidey. But we've only just begun. On 16, Spidey's landed just below an iron barred window, but that won't save him because the Hulk's got hops too. He leaps towards Spidey, both his arms wide, but you know our hero's got agility on best ever. He dodges ah. low, no quips to be made because Spidey's not talking, he's thinking. He's coming at me. If I can time this right, he'll smash into the iron bars behind me. I did it. That'll slow him up for a while. But Spidey's wrong. The Hulk crashes through the iron bars just as easily as he destroyed the wall with nary a grunt, landing on his right knee and shoulder inside of the building in the next panel. Spidey, most of his body in darkness as he follows the Hulk through the window in this stunning panel, thinking what most people who've seen the Hulk's strength in action are thinking. What can it feel like to be that strong? To him, the whole world must seem to be made of paper mache. But Spidey's got a job to do. But anyone can be beaten if you find his weak spot. And before the Hulk can regain his balance, our hero, sailing across the room through the air in the gutter between panels, drives both his feet into the Hulk's left thigh in the next, trying to get the bruiser completely off his feet. For all the good it does, the Hulk eats the blow, grabbing our hero around the waist in a bear hug, threatening to crack Spidey's ribs. And it's to note that this is that cover action shot, but there are no Avengers around. So now I'm thinking the Avengers were trying to save Spidey, but they're nowhere to be found. Our hero is on his own. And as for weak spots, Spidey, a fistful of the Hulk's hair gripped in his left hand, realizes something very important. Uh, the only trouble is this bozo doesn't have weak spot. In the final panel, summoning every bit of strength he can muster, he throws two judo chops. There are no chops in judo. Fine. He throws karate chops to either side of the Hulk's head, connecting with the man monster shoulder blades, screaming. Okay now, let go. They may not be much, but they're the only ribs I've got. On 17, the Hulk stage right hurls Spidey away from him, pissed off. Why do you fight Hulk? Same as everyone else. Everyone chases, attacks, tries to kill me. Spidey, crashing into crates and boxes stage right, thinks the Hulk's right. That Green Jeans didn't go looking for a fight, and even if Spider-Man did, and he did, to be sure. My double karate chumps didn't even hurt him. He tossed me away like I brush off a mosquito. He cannot hurt this mammoth of a man. But he's already known this since that New Mexico desert. On one knee now, rubbing his head, Spidey's hoping the Hulk isn't taking this personal. But of course the Hulk is. You're attacking his person. He shouts, Hulk, do running. Now I fight back. He swings a right hook that Spidey gets ha. low and dodgy to avoid. Wow. Even the breeze from that one would have finished almost anyone else. My man said the breeze could have knocked the person out. But the Hulk hasn't learned the first rule of fighting. Fist. Swing him in. No, mind your surroundings. And his fist smashes through a sheer wall where a sign is posted. The sign? Danger. Gamma ray testing devices. There's a blinding flash of yellow light in the next panel, and the Hulk in profile is bombarded with radiation. Spidey wanted to bring the Hulk to the Avengers, not kill the guy, so of course he's screaming. Hulk, get away! You've broken through the gamma ray shielding wall! You're being bathed with gamma radiation! But a split second later, before Spidey's startled eyes. The Hulk's growing smaller. I, 
think you mean shrink. Shut it, you! The Hulk shrinking by the second, doubled over. He goes from seven feet six inches tall to six feet, his skin getting paler and paler, his hair shifting from green to brown, his purple stretchy pants becoming looser and looser on him as the muscles usually stacked on each other shrink ever smaller before he's five foot nine, 128 pound Robert Bruce Banner, genius extraordinaire. On 18, drawn by John Romita, we see Banner's kind of a hunk with his slightly tousled brown hair and a build that is definitely not 128 pounds. Spidey, from off panel, gets pious. Holy wobbling webs! Who are you? Banner asks what difference that makes, that he won't be himself for very long anyway before answering the question. He says for the record, he's Banner, Dr. Bruce Banner. Spidey, always up on his subscription to 616 Scientist Quarterly, shouts that he's heard of the good doctor, that the man is one of the foremost atomic scientists in the Western world, but he doesn't understand how this genius could become a bird brain like the Hulk. Dr. Banner explains, that explanation once again can be found in the spotlight on the Hulk in the season one episode, Just Deserts. Here on me and my friend Pete. Spidey, realizing the guy is a victim of circumstance more than anything else, thinks the great Dr. Banner couldn't really be bad. Banner, for his part, is displaying signs of a death wish, asking our hero why he didn't destroy him when he was the Hulk, that things would have been better for everyone if he did. The two blanketed in shadow in the next panel in a pink background glow, Spidey replies, Destroy you? I was lucky you didn't make mince me out of me. But tell me, why do the Avengers want you? Banner says he doesn't know. The camera pulls in tight on his face as he continues, saying that when he shifts from Banner to Hulk, his memory becomes fuzzy, and it's hard to put the pieces together. In the next panel, Spidey turns his back to the good doctor, thinking with a hand to his chin. I don't get it. Doc Banner needs help, not punishment. Why didn't those costume characters send me after someone really bad? If we know anything, we know Spidey's got a soft spot in his heart for doctors turned monsters, and that's good, because Dr. Banner is doubling over once more. Feeling a change coming on, he orders Spidey to run while he still can, causing our hero to turn. Banner urges Spidey to get away, that he can't control his actions when he becomes the Hulk, and in the first few minutes, he's not at full strength, before pitching forward, green spreading up his legs and across his back once more. In the final panel, the biggest, baddest bruiser in the MCU is back. Raising a cow leg sized forearm and shaking a fist, the Hulk, not the most flowery speaker by a long shot, gives it a shot regardless. And then I, I, I am the Hulk. Ha, weakling banner is gone. Only Hulk remains. 19 opens with the Hulk lumbering towards Spidey who right fist clinch thinks, now's my chance. He told me himself that he doesn't attain his full strength for minutes after his change. If I can move fast enough, hit hard enough, I'll get him. Translation? It's now or never. And leaping forward to meet Green Jeans head on, the heroic <laughs> Spider-Man throws a devastating right cross, cracking the Hulk square across the jaw so hard, the Hulk's left foot rises from the floor. Sure, his jaw ain't north, and sure, he's probably going to be fine, but that doesn't change the fact. I did it. I staggered the Hulk. The Hulk now on the ground, Spidey gets busy spraying thick webbing around him to keep the green alive down. Shouting that when he doubles the webbing this way, he should be able to stop the charge of the bull elephant. Before having a crisis of conscience in the next panel as he stares down at the subdued Hulk. But the way he's looking at me, like a wounded beast, not knowing why he's been hunted or hurt. Buried somewhere inside that clouded brain is one of the greatest intellects of our time. A man like Dr. Banner deserves something better than this. He and the Hulk cast in shadow in the next panel, Spidey gripping strands of webbing in each hand. He goes on to think. 
I can't do it. I can't turn him over to the Avengers. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he should be their captive. But there's more to this poor tortured being than meets the eye. And I'm not putting myself up as judge and jury. I'm setting him free. But the Hulk's come to his senses, and whether Spider decided or not, Hulk's going to be free. No one ties up Hulk! In the final panel, Hulk snaps through Spidey's webbing with no problem at all, shouting that he must be free. On 20, he swats Spidey away like a gnat, shouting that nothing, but nothing, stops the Hulk. Spidey, barely tapped from the blow, is lifted off his feet, shouting that he isn't going to argue with that sentiment. Translation? I second that emotion. The Hulk lumbers away, his shoulders slouched. Spidey leaps onto a sheer wall, staring at the world's biggest bruiser. His brain has, has no room for villainy. He's dazed, confused, like a child in the dark. He needs help, not hatred. Understanding, not punishment. I couldn't stomach myself if I kept pounding that poor tortured soul. If character was a character, it'd be THE Amazing Spider-Man. A short time later, at the Avengers HQ. We find the Avengers around their round table once more, with a lot of them wondering how Spidey's been faring, saying they should have heard from Spider-Man by now. The Wasp, as salty as ever, says maybe the Hulk beat the King of Swing from Forest Hills, Queens. The group go back and forth, Thor saying they'll wait one more hour. In the next panel, Cap, probably still pissed Spidey Judo tossed him into Goliath a few pages ago, says maybe Spidey's failed and is too embarrassed to show face. A moment before Spidey appears outside of the window, upside down, waving. He flips right side up in the final ah. panel, the Avengers peppering him with questions about what happened with the Hulk. Where is the Hulk? Why did Spidey come back without him? But Spidey's already made his decisions. His answer? Looks like you gentlemen have to do your avenging without me. I couldn't even find that big green gloop. So, this is your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man signing off for now. Great power. You already know the rest. On 21, Spidey's gotten out of Dodge, leaving the Avengers to wonder amongst themselves about what went wrong. Iron Man says he can't believe Spidey's taking his failure so lightly. Thor says there's more to this than they know. He can feel it. The Wasp says despite hating spiders, she's still disappointed Spidey won't be joining. Goliath, his misogyny larger than his 10-foot frame, says he'll never understand females. Cap, both hands on his hips, tells the Avengers why they were looking for the Hulk, as if they don't know already that the poor brute needs their help. On the literal last page of the comic, we find out the reason. Sure, Spidey jumped the gun more than once in this one, but I'm still going to blame the Avengers for their poor planning. Before even reaching out to Spidey, they should have had all this sorted. They should have told him, hey, find the Hulk. We want to help him. Look at that bureaucracy in action failing. Either way, we're here now. And finally, the guy taking this news the hardest is Hawkeye, who is really a fan of the Spider-Man. Or was. Scowling and side-eyeing at the same damn time, he shouts, Maybe Spidey isn't all he's cracked up to be, like Jonah Jameson's paper says. Never meet your heroes, Hawkeye. Everybody knows that. In the next panel, we find our hero scaling a sheer wall thinking about his running with the Hulk, and we see he had a plan to get the Hulk to Avengers HQ. I could have passed that test easily. With my superior speed, I could have kept taunting the Hulk until he followed me straight back to Avengers HQ. But I couldn't make myself do it. It would have been like leading a dumb animal to slaughter. That's a great plan. The next panel, we find the goldenrod kid Peter Parker, as J.B. Blazer and Slax, walking along the sidewalk of his Forest Hills, Queens neighborhood, his head lowered, hands in pocket, as usual, lost in thought. It's funny. funny. I wanted to be an Avenger. Wanted it so bad I could taste it. And yet, I deliberately fumbled the ball. Well, maybe it was just fate's way of saying Spider-Man was cut out to be a loner.
And perhaps in a way it's best that Peter Parker doesn't suspect the truth, that he doesn't know the Avengers wanted to help the Hulk as much as he himself did. How is that for the best, Caption Box? Pete gets home in a gutter between panels and when we find him next, he's sitting in a tan armchair with his back to us, facing the window in the den of his aunt's Forest Hills home as Queen May in her purple dress enters the room stage right, her hand just below her chin, worry on her face at the sight of her nephew. She asks if Pete's all right and of course offers him a glass of warm milk. I will never get over how disgusting the idea of warm milk is to me in my mind. I know it was soothing back then, or maybe still now, people still drink. Do you still drink warm milk? Maybe I shouldn't yuck your young. Maybe I shouldn't, you know, cast aspersions on your young. My boy KD says, don't yuck my yum, and that's what I'm doing with warm milk. I apologize. If you like warm milk, let me know in the comments. Actually, you don't have to. Back to. Pete says he's fine, just tired, but he's thinking. One of the world's greatest fighting teams, and I threw away a chance to be part of it. He slams his fist onto a stack of books on the next panel, spider webs draping a neon pink background behind him as he continues his thoughts. Why does nothing seem to work out right for me? Even when I win, I lose. But I'll keep telling myself that it all worked out for the best. And maybe someday, he gets up from the armchair and makes his way to the window. Gripping a curtain with either hand, he stares out of the window, finishing his sad monologue. I might even believe it. And, and we're out. If you're wondering why Spidey wasn't an official member of the Avengers for nearly 50 years, there's your answer. Our hero, as always, had too much heart. Love the action in this one. I especially love Captain America getting judo tossed. Anytime someone tosses Cap around, it's a little bit funny to me, even though he's one of my favorite heroes. The classic hero misunderstanding leading into a slugfest was a sight to behold. My favorite part of the whole thing being Spidey leaping across the table at Hawkeye. King of Swing didn't bring any proper. John Romita did a great job with these busy pack panels, standing man as well with the story. I think it's hilarious that the Avengers' own bureaucracy led to Spidey getting a unanimous vote for Avengers membership and simultaneously was the reason the Spider-Man wound up not joining. I always wondered how Spidey came to know Bruce Banner and the Hulk shared the same body and what an issue to find out in. What an annual. That's the main episode this week. And that's true. That's the main episode. But thanks to a little podcast magic on the tail end of this episode, we've got back-to-back stories of the Great One going one-on-one with the Eight One. That's Spidey versus Dr. Octopus and two classic Spidey tales, Return of Dr. Octopus and Unmasked by Dr. Octopus. Both these stories took place pretty early on in our podcasting adventures, so if you've never listened, now's the time. And next episode... We've got Spidey going toe-to-toe with John Jonah Jameson the third. Turns out those space borers weren't as harmless as we thought. Join us next time for The Amazing Spider-Man number 42, The Birth of a Superhero. The comic that introduces us to one of the greatest comic book characters of all time. If you haven't become a patron over on patreon.com slash hspp, he thinks it's time you should. Patrons get exclusive access to season two bonus episodes, the ability to vote on which bonus episodes are covered here on me and my friend Pete. But wait, there's more! If you become a patron before ASM number 50, you receive a special thank you gift for being a patron during season two. Let's keep these good times rolling. You won't regret it. You got questions? Send them to me in my friend Pete at gmail.com and I'll go digging for the answers. Follow us on Instagram at MNMFP underscore podcast. The panel of the week can be found at patreon.com slash HSPP. 
Thank you so much to all our patrons. We couldn't do it without you, and we wouldn't want to if we could. Please like, please comment, please Give share, us a follow please take care, and please think of the world and be true to yourself. All that said, that's all that said. That dusty trails are calling, so there's no use stalling, and you know the tagline for the people. With great power, come on, baby. Got to make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here. Me and my best friend Pete. Old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns. Kind of kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. The credits on The Amazing Spider-Man number 11. We have writing, smiling Stan Lee. On art, we have sweet. Winging Steve Ditko, and this masterpiece was lettered by Sam Goesham Rosen. The cover of this Amazing Spider-Man gives me nostalgia vibes. The logo, The Amazing Spider-Man, is written in yellow with red beneath the word Spider-Man on a midnight blue backdrop. This logo reminds me a lot of the 90s cartoon Spidey logo because these are the same colors exactly, so I'm already loving the issue. Loving it already. The stage is set in the lower deck of a ship. To the right of the page, cast in a light brown hue are stairs or ladders for sailors out there. Rivets are lining the bulkheads. There's a solitary porthole on the bulkhead. There's a floor grate near the ladders, and the whole deck is lime green. The passageway will be cast completely in shadow if there weren't a yellow spotlight shining on the two people battling beneath it. We see Spidey is now 0 for 2 in covers when he's facing off against the one-man hands team, Dr. Octopus. In this one, we find Spidey sitting on the floor of the deck, his back pressed against the bulkhead. His right hand is pressed flat against the deck. He's staring up at Dr. Octopus, who, wearing a green turtleneck, SJBs and brown loafers, is using three of his metal arms for balance on the deck and is lunging towards Spidey. He's holding Spider-Man's right wrist with his right hand, not a metal arm. Doc Ock was putting in work wherever he was because he is jacked. He's reaching towards Spidey with his left hand and his bicep is fighting to burst out of its sleeve. So he's put on some muscle. He's not kidding around anymore. On his face, behind his wayfarer glasses, he's scowling beneath bushy eyebrows and a bowl haircut. His mouth is open in a dangerous sneer. His jowls are poking out. His double chin too. He looks crazed and I don't blame him at all. All those arms and Spidey still gave him the How you doing? Doc Ock's free metal arm is curving above Spidey's head. This is a beautiful cover. There's a red screen bubble above them heralding the long-awaited return of Dr. Octopus. Behind Dr. Octopus, we get a pink caption box. It says, Turning point. See what happens when Spider-Man decides to reveal his secret identity to someone else. Will he really do it? Will this be the turning point of his amazing career? Or? But why not turn these pages and learn for yourself in this classic tale told in the marvelous Marvel manner? Beneath Dr. Octopus's suspended leg, another spectacular smash hit from the House of Ideas. With all this excitement, I'm turning the page. We get the sign of the spider, Spidey's name curving along the inside edges of the logo, as always, in a goldenrod negative space. Whenever I see goldenrod on the page one, I get excited. I think it's Pavlovian. Exciting things happen when goldenrod is in the mix. Next to the Spidey sign, we see the title of this issue. Turning point in red and beneath it, featuring the return of Dr. Octopus. In the background, a large gray shadow of Dr. Octopus. There's a white spotlight behind it set on a robin's egg blue. The shadow's arms are all curling in towards Ock's shadow, which extend down the wall onto the purple floor and off the page. In the center of the page, we see the golden liability. He's standing in profile, his left side facing us, his right leg slightly out in front of him, a little contraposto action, as none other than Betty Brant slams her fist into his chest. So Spidey's standing here suited and booted, and Betty is pounding on his chest. She is stunning in a green blouse with triangle hemming along the wrist, a yellow belt across her waist with loop designs matching the scarf wrapping her neck perfectly. She's wearing a yellow skirt, green heels, and black dangling earrings. 
There are tears running down her cheeks as she screams, I hate you, Spider-Man. I'll hate you till the day I die. I don't think Betty knows comic characters live a long time if they're golden. Or maybe she does, and that's some hatred. Behind Spidey, we see a large yellow question mark. Inside of it, the writing says, Is Spider-Man destined to lose Betty Brant, the girl he loves? How did it happen? And why? And as always, you got Silver Age Marvel, you got horn tooting. None but Stan Lee could have written this epic tale. None but Steve Ditko could have drawn such gripping scenes. So now we're in a convent of the impossible as the Mighty Marvel Comics group says, None but the Mighty Marvel Comics group could have produced a book-length thriller such as this. Y'all know I'm co-signing. They're telling us Dr. Octopus returned. They're telling us Betty Brant's secret is inside. They're saying we're going to see Spidey's greatest victory and greatest disappointment. Marvel's talking a big game right now, putting a lot of pressure on the kid from Forest Hills. But pressure busts pipes and makes diamonds. So let's see what the golden liabilities got in them. Here we go. The story opens with a caption box. A world-famous superhero doesn't spend all his time fighting deadly menaces. There are moments he spends alone, deep in thought, mulling over the past and pondering the future. Such a superhero is Spider-Man, and such a moment is this. And we see Pete's bedroom. In the foreground, we see his chemistry set, stage left, and in table stage right, there's a radiator in the background next to a window with orange curtains. In the center of the room, we see Pete, suited and booted except for his mask and gloves, sitting on a gray wooden chair, his shoulders slouched. He's lamenting the loss of Betty Brandt, who left town last issue in ASM number 10. You know we have the story here. That's BCC, Dr. C.K. Connors, How to Plan, here on Me and My Friend Pete back too. So Pete's thinking, ever since Betty Brent left town, I've been carrying a king-sized torch. I've got to snap out of it. Got to try to forget her. Aw, uh, who am I kidding? I'll never forget her. Never stop searching for her. The kid loves her and he says he'll never forget her. He'll never stop searching for her. He wishes he had a clue to go on to find her when his thoughts are interrupted by the radio on the end table. We interrupt our program for a bulletin. Having served his full prison term, the notorious Dr. Octopus is to be released today. Dr. Octopus, if you recall in ASM number three, the We Didn't Start the Fire episode here on Me and My Friend Pete, kidnapped three people, that's a mandatory minimum of five years each, possibly killed another and recklessly endangered countless more, that's up to seven years in prison, more if that poor guy close to the reactor died, and destroyed public governmental property, which if the damage is over $100, is a fine of up to $250,000 and 10 years in prison. All these numbers are from justice.gov. Man was looking to face at least 32 years in prison and was only hit with eight months. I'm guessing it was for good behavior, so he must be downright saintly behind bars. But Pete's remembering when the man wasn't. The next panel, we see Pete straight on, a look of shock in his eyes as he remembers his bout with Dr. Octopus. He thinks, Dr. Octopus to be released? They can't do it. They mustn't. He's one of the most dangerous men alive. Even I, with all my power, came close to being defeated by him. And we get a flashback panel to the tense moment when Dr. Octopus and Spider-Man scrap back in issue number three. We see the one-man hands team, his fleshy hands to his face, fighting to remove the webbing on his Ray-Bans. His mechanical arms are out in front of him, two melted together, wrapped around the waist of the webhead, smoking. And Spidey is fighting to control the other two with his hands. The moment just before Spidey put him down, the memory of the fight is enough to shock Pete out of his macabre state. He grabs his mask and gloves and, suited and booted, gets in go mode. Within seconds. Spidey is crawling up the outside of his Forest Hills home, telling himself he's gotta prevent Dr. Octopus from being freed. In the final panel, great panel, we see Spidey web swinging high above Queens, and he's saying it's great to be on the go again, that this is just what he needed. Spidey, 
is on the move. Moments later at the municipal prison. Spidey is high above the prison, walking easily on a thin wire, as he does, searchlights spinning beneath him as he thinks he's the only person who ever tried breaking into a prison. And Spidey's right, this is a long time before prison break hit the airwaves. Next, a gray-haired man in a brown suit is standing at his desk, his body slightly hunched in alarm. He screams, Spider-Man! In shock, as the sign of the spider illuminates the wall next to his bookshelf, Spidey screams, Warning! You gotta prevent Dr. Octopus release! He must not be set free! While crawling into the room from the window, resting near a picture on the wall, Spidey continues, Sorry to break in this way, but I didn't want to waste a minute! Is he still behind bars? And the warden, probably Big Brass Davis' older brother, isn't swayed by Spidey's warning. Pointing towards the open window, he says, Yes, but he leaves tonight. We can't hold him. He served his time. As for you, I'll give you 10 seconds to leave the way you entered. No masked adventurer dictates the law while I'm warden here. Gave Spidey 10 seconds to get out of there. I respect that truly because my idea of wardens comes from my studies in sociology and I find they're much closer to Warden Norton from Shawshank Redemption than the guy we see here protecting the rights of an inmate set to be released. We know he's completely wrong in this instance, but the majority of imprisoned folks absolutely deserve this mentality. I respect it. Back to the next panel, we see the one-man hands team in a brown-walled, orange-doored prison cell. Both his fleshy fists clenched, his mechanical arms curling out at his sides. He's wearing prison greens with the collar popped around his neck, and as always, his Ray-Bans. He's pacing back and forth in front of his sink, and we know Doc Ock doesn't monologue out loud. He's thinking, Glad I was smart enough not to try to escape. I knew I'd get time off for good behavior. Now they can't hold me any longer. The next panel, we see Doc Ock hasn't just been sitting idly around in his cell. Standing in a golden rod negative space, he continues. I was able to spend all my time improving my dexterity with my extra arms. I can use them so well now that I'll never be captured again. And he's not kidding. His fleshy hands on his hips, we see his metal arms working. Going forward, I think we should label them for storytelling purposes. So we'll call his right metal arms R1 for the upper, R2 for the lower, and his left L1 and L2 for the same. So the one-man hands team is standing here exhaling smoke from a cigarette held in R1 that was lit by a match with L1 as R2 holds a pack of cigarettes. He's showing a great amount of control here and I know it doesn't bode well for the young web slinger. And Pete knows it too. Later, back home again, Spider-Man changes to his everyday identity as Peter Parker, teenage science buff, as he works on a peculiar device. And we see Pete at his workstation, hunched over, his Spidey costume still on, minus his mask and gloves. He's staring through a magnifying glass at a raised platform on his workstation. His left and right hands are holding what I assume are a soldering iron and tweezers. And we hear Spidey is taking no chances. He says, I guess the warden was right. A man can't be kept in jail longer than his sentence. Everyone deserves a second chance. But just the same, this little gizmo I cooked up will help me keep tabs on Doc Ock. Just in case. I don't personally like the idea of surveilling anyone, but Pete ain't the watchman and I trust his judgment. Great power. You already know the rest. Page 4 opens to a close-up of Spidey's new device. We get a great shot through the magnifying glass of a small metal spider, as Spidey from off-panel says it's a detailed replica of a live spider with a few adjustments, namely the transistorized circuitry he's included. Pete holds up a square device that has an antenna poking out of its face on the right side in the next panel. It's the size of the palm of his hand and we see the antenna on it light up at the same time that the small spider he created now on the ceiling does. It says no matter where the little spider is, it'll send back coded messages to him that he'll be able to follow through his receiver. My people, we got the first appearance of the spider tracer. One of my favorite things about Doc Ock is he forces Spidey to keep pushing himself with his hands and his mind to new heights. 
Fun fact, Hank Pym, the original Ant-Man and one of the foremost geniuses in the Marvel 616 universe, believes Spider-Man is a hell of a lot smarter than he is because Hank Pym created the same device for his Ant-Man helmet at a much later age than Pete did at 15. Game recognizes game. Back to the next panel, we see Pete isn't wasting any time. Pulling his mask down over his face, a smile on his lips at his own genius, he says now his only problem is finding a way to attach the spider tracer to Dr. Octopus but knows Spidey can get it done. The next panel, we see the one-man hand seen exiting the prison, a guard standing behind him in a blue uniform, wearing a SJB fedora with a black brim, a matching tie, and a beautiful JJP colored suit. Dr. Octopus is stepping back out into the world, fresh to death. Both his fleshy fists clenched, he's walking past the guard in the background, and his mechanical arms are working. L1 is adjusting the fedora on his head. L2 is holding a cigarette out in front of him. R1 is buttoning his suit jacket and R2 holding his carrying bags. Octopus is not using his real hands at all. The police officer tells Dr. Octopus that he has talent, so it shouldn't be hard for him to land a job, as long as he keeps his nose clean. Otto Octavius, 008, has no plans on doing any of that. He thinks, a job. Do they expect me to become a working man like an ordinary, unimaginative weakling before I'm through? The whole world will tremble at the mention of my name. My man is doom monologuing in his mind. I love it. His internal monologue is undefeated. I imagine beneath that thought, he's thinking, I'm a whole different animal now. I was the foremost atomic researcher. What can I expect with the label of ex-con in these recidivism rates? The next panel, we see Otto Octavius walking towards a yellow car that resembles a 60s taxi cab. The driver of the car says they've arrived just like they promised they would in the letter. Octavius says, good, he's anxious to get started. Spidey, suited, booted, and taking no chances, lands on the trunk of a nearby tree thinking he arrived just in time. He notices that the driver of the car is a girl and wonders who it could be. The next panel, we see none other than Betty Brant in the driver's seat. She's wearing a green trench coat with the collar pops, large white earrings, a yellow scarf, and white driving gloves. She has her head down in anger and disgust as Dr. Octopus climbs into the car. And the look on his face? The thirstiest. He's leering at Betty like he's never seen a girl before. Betty tells him to get comfortable because it's a long drive, while Spidey, off panel, is in complete shock. He hasn't seen Betty for almost a month, and now she's popped back up as the first man to give him a hard L chauffeur. I think pissed is an understatement. Shocked too. He thinks, it, it's Betty, but what's her connection with Dr. Octopus? In the final panel, the car pulls away from the curb towards the edge of the page, and Spidey gives chase through the trees. He notices that a map fell from the car and thinks that Betty is driving away too fast for him to follow. But Spidey's been inventing and he knows that this is the perfect time to do some new product testing. Five opens to a beautiful panel of Spidey hurling a spider tracer towards the yellow car saying it's easy to get a perfect toss with his spider strength. And he's right. Does Spidey get the hit? Of course he gets the hit. In the next panel, we see the small gray spider stick onto the roof of the car above the rear passenger door. As the car speeds away from Spidey, the caption box above the next panel reads, And so... Unaware of the strange object on top of the car, Betty Brant drives off into the night with her sinister passenger as our little cast of characters come closer to their date with destiny. Meantime, Spidey bends down to scoop up the map that fell from the car, and as always, he's giving the game away. He says, It's a map of Philadelphia, and the car had pencil license plates. That must be their destination. Well, Spidey boy, it looks like you're going to take a trip too. I've got to see this through to the end. Spidey boy's headed to the city of brotherly love, and that's good. I hear it's always sunny there. Our scene now changes to the city of brotherly love where we find an attorney visiting his client in jail. Or maybe not. We're staring through prison bars at two men in shadow talking in a cell. One, stage right, is wearing a green prison jumpsuit much like Dr. Octopus's. The other, stage left, a light brown suit. The man in the prison jumpsuit says, Well, Brent, did your sister do as I told her? I hope so, mister, for your sake. And the other replies, 
Don't worry, Blackie. She's probably driving Dr. Octopus back to Philly right now. Betty wouldn't let me down. So this is Betty's brother. What has he gotten her mixed up into? In the final panel, we see the men named Blackie and Brant up close. Blackie is the spitting image of Groucho Marx in the movie Skidoo, but nothing here is a laughing matter. He grabs Brant, a blonde-haired, long-chinned man with large earlobes by the collar, and slams him up against the wall of the cell, saying, She better not. That gambling debt you owe me is already past due, and you know what my boys do to Welchers, don't you, Brant? And Brant starts flop-sweating immediately. He says, I know, Blackie. I've been your lawyer for too long not to know. I think this is great writing and art. This entire page, down to the precision of the lettering, is beautiful. SNSNS connects you right now. Stan, Steve, Sam, working. Blackie lets go of Brant to open page six, telling him he'll cancel his debt when Dr. Octopus breaks Blackie out of jail and not a moment before. He tells Brant to get lost because he has some thinking to do. Brant, fixing his tie, doesn't wait around. We see him exiting the cell block, a guard holding a gate open for him in the next panel, as he walks with his head down, thinking to himself. We find out his first name is Bennett. So Bennett and Betty's parents had a thing for the double B names, I don't hate it, and Bennett was the top dog in his law school. He can't understand how he went from that to a stooge for the biggest mobster on the eastern seaboard. He thinks he just wanted to make easy money and realizes there's no such thing. Worse, now Betty is wrapped up in this dangerous entanglement. Lost in his own rueful thoughts, the gangland mouthpiece reaches his apartment to find. And we see Bennett open the door to his apartment. It's beautifully furnished. We've got a blue accent wall stage left, an orange wall in the background, a bulbous lamp in the foreground stage right. And in the center of the room, we see Dr. Octopus advancing towards Betty, all four of his metallic arms outstretched around her, R2 and L2 gripping her wrist as she backs up into the accent wall behind her. Dr. Octopus has gone from leering to intimidation. He says, So, you don't think Dr. Octopus is good enough to talk to you, eh? You haven't said a word since we drove from New York. Betty wants no parts. She screams for him to stay away from her. She says she's done everything asked of her, and now she'd like to go, just as Bennett opens the door to the apartment. She screams, thank goodness. Bennett gets excited that Betty has returned before seeing the doctor gripping Betty's wrist. He screams, say, what's going on? Dr. Octopus, unbothered by the lawyer, grabs him by the collar with L1 in the next panel and backhands him with a fleshy left. He tells Brent that he's heard he's spineless and doesn't make a move without Blackie's okay before telling the lawyer to follow him into the next room to talk business. In the final panel, we see Bennett grab Betty by the shoulders and she's clearly rattled. She asks, Oh, Bennett, now that I've brought him here as I promised Blackie Gaxton, can't you leave? Can't you go somewhere and make a fresh start? Please. Bennett says, Not yet. Not till Dr. Octopus breaks Blackie out of jail. He promises that if he ever gets free of Blackie, he's going to pay her back for all she's done for him and make her proud. I wonder if Bennett is the guy Betty was talking about in ASM number 9 who reminded her of Pete. She said Pete was getting a thrill from danger, and Bennett's running around with 008, the one-man hand team, and Blackie Gaxton. That's pretty dangerous, but that can't be the reason alone because I agree with Betty. Pete shoots the thrill, but it's with spidey skills and a whole heck of a lot more bravery than Bennett's shown so far. Seven opens to Betty asking a great question. She's very sharp for a 16-year-old, as most kids are who find themselves in adult situations. She says if you do the jailbreak, you be an accessory and never be able to go straight. And that's true. Bennett lets her arms go, turns, and puts his head down saying, I just can't right now. I haven't the courage. If only I hadn't gotten you mixed up in all this. So he already knows he's in too deep. He goes over into the next room, leaving Betty alone. She takes a seat on a chair in the corner, sobbing, thinking about the position her brother put her in. She gave Bennett all the money she saved working as JJ's secretary to pay off her brother's debts, and it wasn't enough. She thinks it'll never be enough. 
I guess with the fall of the big man, the debt went back to Blackie. She goes on to think that she had to run away from Peter because she didn't know how to tell him about Bennett. And now, she can never return. She wonders where it'll end. Don't lose hope, Betty. There's a lot of story left. Speaking of the Goldenrod Kid, we get a caption box above the next panel letting us know that Peter Parker, the Goldenrod Kid, is planning to find her and figure out what's going on. We see him in the kitchen with Aunt May just style flaring. He's leaning against the fridge in the kitchen in a light brown vest with black horizontal stripes, SJBs, and brown loafers. He's wearing a white collar shirt with the collar popped. Everyone in this issue popping collars. It's going around. I like it. And Pete's talking to May, who's wearing a purple dress. So Queen May today with a pink frilly collar and apron. In her hand, she has a wooden spoon and a mixing bowl. I think May is baking a cake. Pete says, Aunt May? I'm thinking of taking a little trip this weekend. I've always wanted to visit Philadelphia and see the historical sites. And May says, do it. It'll do you good because you've been listless lately. She tells him she's sorry she can't go with him because she has a lot of things to do here at home. And Pete says he understands. He thinks she'd find it tough keeping up with the golden liability these next few days if she came along anyway. A few minutes later, after a jet from New York lands at the Philadelphia airport. I'm convinced. Spidey just hits the ride on the outside of the plane. We know he can. We've seen him hang on to much faster moving vehicles and there's no way he got to the airport, got a ticket, got through checking and on a seat in a few minutes. New York nor Philly makes things happen like that. JFK is definitely not making that happen for you. LaGuardia is not making that happen for you. So Spidey's the ultimate hitchhiker. We see him web swinging above the city of brotherly love past Philadelphia City Hall, but there's no statue of the founder of Philly, the great William Billy Penn on top, but maybe it was taken down for cleaning. Who knows? Shout out to Billy Penn. As Spidey swings by, you know he's screaming, giving the game away, and does he got a game ahead of him. He says, now all I've got to do is find Betty, see what her connection with Doc Ock is, make sure that he isn't causing any trouble, and be back in New York in time for class Monday morning. That's all. But Spidey works fast, and in no time at all, we see he's covered half the city of Philadelphia while he walks along a chimney stack. But no luck. He says it's a good thing he brought a full supply of wet fluid with him because the search goes on. 20 more minutes pass of Spidey swinging past rooftops before we see him swinging on a web line in the final panel in a goldenrod negative space. Around his neck, we see the small portable receiver for his spider tracer finally begin to activate. The tracer is somewhere nearby. I like this panel a lot. The webbing in this issue has begun to take a turn from just single strands to resemble more of how Spidey's webbing looks today. A little funky, a little all over the place. We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, 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 Infinity Page. Page 8. Just in time to see Pete, SJB, suit, tan vest, pop collar, find Betty on the Philly street below his girl Friday. He screams... Betty, then it was you. I found you at last. And Betty, still in her yellow and green ensemble, turns hearing his voice. She replies in shock. Peter, you've been searching for me? I never dreamt. The next panel, Pete's on Broad Street and his feelings are over on front. Grabbing Betty's shoulders, he tells her he couldn't just let her walk out of his life. She means too much to him. And Betty, a slight smile on her lips, replies, Oh, Peter. What a fool I was. I should have confided in you. Should have told you everything right at the start. I, I need you, Peter. I don't know where to turn. So it's reunited and it feels so good. And then, her trembling voice choked with emotion, Betty tells the boy she loves all about her brother, Blackie Gaxton and Dr. Octopus. Beneath the street lamp, Betty tells Pete she had to drive Dr. Octopus to Philly. It was the only way to keep her brother safe from Blackie Gaxton. Pete tells her none of this is her fault, that Betty did all she could, and he's glad she confided in him because he has some good news for her. The next panel, we get Spider Pete. I won't call him Pete Rock because someone forgot to color in the black around his spidey eye, so it's a little jarring. But Spider Pete tells Betty he's just learned that Spider-Man is in Philly to keep tabs on the one-man hands team so they won't have to worry about Doc Ock or Blackie Gaxton. 
and Pete Sprung seeing Betty again, knowing he can help her, he thinks, I've just decided I can't keep it from her any longer. Once we're back in New York, I'm going to tell Betty that I am Spider-Man. My man is going to spill the beans, the Spidey beans. He loves her. She needs to know that the golden liability is the golden rod kid. He is I and I am him. And Betty, I love you and you need to know this. This is where Pete is right now on Broad Street. Feelings on front. I like it. But sometimes fate has other plans. For on the other side of town, a strange menacing form swings from roof to roof on a sinister mission. And we see Dr. Octopus, his four mechanical arms stretched between two buildings as he races above the city in a purple shirt and pants combo. In a rare moment of external monologue, he says this task is child's play for Dr. Octopus. And scaling the wall of a separate building in the final panel, we hear why Doc Ock is helping to spring Blackie Gaxton from prison. He says... As soon as I collect the $100,000 which Blackie will pay me for this job, I'll have the stick I need to make myself the king of crime. Nine opens the doctor, puts tearing the iron bars off of Blackie's window as Blackie tells him he knew he was the right man for the job. We get a beautiful panel of Doc Ock using R1 and L1 to scale down the side of the building as Blackie holds on to R2 and L2 like a ladder beneath him. It's great art. And Ock, his ego on perpetually swollen, tells Blackie he was the only man for the job and not to forget it, that he's not a common criminal. I'll vouch for that. And Blackie replies, Sure, Doc, sure. Don't get sore. As soon as we reach my getaway ship in the harbor, you'll get your payoff. Or, don't get your jaw in an uproar. I respect Blackie, showing a wise guy attitude in the face of a megalomaniac. I love to see it. We see Spidey racing towards the prison, high above the city. It's a great panel, cars driving beneath him. And he says he knows Doc Ock is going to try to spring Gaxton while the mobs are still at the courthouse because if Blackie's transferred to the state pen, it'll be a much tougher job. He lands on the roof of the courthouse in the next panel, moments after the alarm has sounded and right into a spotlight shining on him by two prison guards. One screams, look, it's Spider-Man. The other, maybe he's the one who helped Blackie escape. And that's not an unfair assumption. The hell is a New York boy doing in Philly at City Hall during a jailbreak? I don't think they'll believe Spidey if he tells them he has bad luck. He doesn't either. And in a goldenrod negative space, shielding his face from the glare of the spotlight with his right hand, he thinks he has to move fast and black out the spotlight. And I think Spidey is cross-dominant or mixed-handed because we've seen all throughout his journey that he'll lead with the left as Spidey with the web shooters. Here, he sprays a shot at the spotlight with his left hand. Does Spidey get the hit? Of course he gets the hit, and we see webbing douse the spotlight before Spidey leaps off of the rooftop huh. into the final panel. Shooting a line of webbing with his left hand. Your honor, I rest my case. He thinks it's a rotten break that he arrived too late, and he was spotted, so they're probably going to blame him for Blackie's escape. Page 10 opens to Spidey, mid-swing, high above Market Street, and you know how I know he's worried? He screams, suffering spiderwebs, and thinks that Betty's in real danger now. Great danger. She's going to be forced to be around Blackie and Dr. Octopus. And we see Spidey's right. In the next panel, Betty and Bennett are in a room with three of Blackie's goonies, and I love how Ditko's been drawing these random gangsters. The guy on stage left, orange blazer, gray fedora, puffing a cigarette, looks like he's been struck square in the face with a frying pan. That's how flat his face is. He's jerking his thumb towards the door while one of his partners, maroon vest, blue fedora, points a gun at Bennett. Betty, a hand to her mouth, asks why this is happening. They did everything Blackie asked. Why won't he let them go? Bennett says, I was a fool. I should have known he'd never let us go. And the third goon agrees with him. Glad you know it. Let's go. The next panel, Blackie and Doc Ock have set up shop on the docks of the devil's pocket. Got it? We see a small ship, a tramp steamer, glowing in orange twilight, so the sun's going down on the Schuylkill River, and mobsters already aboard the ship are saying they're going to hang out here until their escort arrives, then they're going to flee to a foreign country where no one will ever be able to touch them. And then, the final two passengers come aboard. Gaxton, Dr. Octopus, a step behind him, has just arrived. 
Doc Ock tells him to hurry up and board the ship, that he's not letting the man out of his sight until he's paid his hundred grand. A hundred grand. You know I looked it up. That, in today's money, is $892,222.58. Doc Ock is poised to become a millionaire off of one day's work. Say what you want. That's impressive. Nice work if you can get it. Oh man, nice work if you can get it. But I guess when you got eight arms, you can get it. And Blackie says, don't worry, fella. It's aboard the ship. You'll get it. But unsuspected by any of those on board, there is still another passenger swinging onto the ship. I hope Blackie Gaxon's insured because he's kidnapped the Golden Liability's lady and the Golden Liability has just swung in. Spidey's thinking it's a good thing they used the car with his gizmo on it because he used it to follow them all the way here. Meantime, Blackie wasted no time getting out of that drab prison green. We see him pulling on a maroon blazer, a sky blue tie already on the white shirt he's wearing. Tie clip? Of course. Cufflinks? Come on, that's Blackie Gaxton. Of course. A cigar in his mouth and enforcer behind him. He steps onto the lower deck of the ship. Betty throws her hands up. Bennett rushes up to him, placing a hand on his shoulder, pleading, screaming. You can't do this, Blackie. I've done everything you asked. You're free now, just as you wanted to be. So my debt is canceled. You've got to let us go. Blackie's eyes look down at Bennett's hand. He says, I do, huh? And knocks Bennett out with a right cross to open page 11, screaming, this will show you that Blackie Gaxon doesn't have to do anything. Now I don't want to hear another peep out of you. As Betty screams in horror, Spidey swinging onto the ship, hears her scream and realizes they brought Betty onto the ship. Next panel, we get a caption box. But in his haste to reach Betty's side, Spider-Man carelessly slips on a coil of rope as he lands. And we see Spidey land awkwardly on the rope, rolling his ankle as he does. He calls himself a bonehead for not noticing it before. He bends down to check his foot and realizes it's sprained, just as he's spotted by two mafia goons with guns drawn. They tell him to get up because they're taking him to see the boss. In a final panel, along horizontal, we see Spidey let into a packed room with his hands raised. We've got the frying pan-faced gangster here, a cigarette dangling from his mouth in shock at the sight of Spidey. The two guys who just caught Spidey, Blackie in the center of the room, Bennett and Betty at stage left behind him, another random goon, and finally Dr. Octopus. Spidey looks around the room and thinks he's really in for it. Blackie is pissed. Looking over his shoulder, he asks why his goons brought Spider-Man down to the lower deck. He calls them fools and tells them Spider-Man is dangerous. But Doc Ock's here and you know he's been itching for the rematch with Spidey. He says, don't worry about him, Gaxton. I've been waiting for a chance to have my revenge on him. You won't have to worry about Spider-Man. I promise you that. So no fear in this room, just all the ingredients for action. We turn the page and Dr. Octopus, the pincers on his metal arm snapping, continues. But there are some other things you can start worrying about, such as the fact that I'm taking over now. Now that I know the money is on board the ship, I need you no longer. So Dr. Octopus, to become the Mafia King, is just gonna take over Gaxton's crew right now. No honor among thieves and megalomaniacs then, huh? Guess not. But Spidey's heard enough. Webbing the ceiling with both hands, he kicks the gun out of the hand of the mobster in the green suit to his huh. left and in a fluid motion with the same leg, kicks the goon to his right wearing a tan suit, saying that since everybody else is making speeches, he might as well furnish some entertainment. Quipping. Spidey thinks fighting here won't be easy with a bad ankle and tells himself he needs to move fast enough to keep his foes off balance. We see him hanging from a web line, throwing a beautiful punch that knocks one of the mobsters into the other as he screams, first, I'll take care of the hired hands, like this. I'll save the best for last. And it was some punch because the green-suited mobster flies across the room and crashes into Dr. Octopus, both men flying backwards through the hatchway of the room and down the ladder. Spidey screams, oops, watch yourself. I wouldn't want you to skin your pink little knuckles when you fall down and go boom. And we got action. Next panel, Spidey lifting his legs to dodge a punch thrown by Tantu, hopes to himself that Doc Ock stays down and out of the fight long enough for Spidey to deal with Blackie's men. He cracks a blue-suited gang member across the jaw saying, nice try, playmate, but tells the man he isn't as easy as a helpless girl and her 
brother. In the final panel, we see Spidey's work fast. All his goons scattered, we see Blackie crawling on his hands and feet towards a pistol on the floor. Spidey hopping over a downed gang member to get to him as Betty looks on. And Spidey's friendly. He says, What's up, Blackie boy? Oh, trying to reach that pop gun, eh? Wait. Let me help you. Spidey grabs Blackie by the wrist to open 13 as the man fires two shots over Spidey's shoulder, screaming even Spider-Man can be stopped by a bullet. Spidey screams for Betty and Bennett to take cover and stay there until he can get the man's gun away. And Spidey better work fast because in the next panel, we see bullets flying above the heads of Bennett and Betty. And Bennett's not having it. He jumps in front of Betty, putting himself between his sister and the danger, telling her to stay down. Betty, her eyes wide in fear, tells Bennett to get down, that she's fine. He's in the line of fire and needs to stay back. She screams at Spider-Man to stop struggling with Blackie as a shot rings out and Bennett screams. Oh! The next panel, Betty screams Bennett's been shot and Spidey, a little jerkish in the moment, asks, I told him to stay back until I got Blackie's gun. Why didn't he listen? You're missing the point, Spidey. He's shot. Bennett, doubled over, gripping his gut with both arms, says, "It, It's better this way. I was no good to anyone. Maybe now you can wash your hands of all of this. Before dropping to the floor, lifeless, Betty snaps. She rushes at Spidey and we see the moment from the action on page one as she beats her fist against Spidey's chest. She screams, it's your fault. If you hadn't interfered, if you hadn't tried to be a hero, it might not have happened. I hate you. Do you hear? I hate you. And Spidey tells her she can't mean that. Betty falls to her knees on the next panel over Bennett's body. She wishes Peter were there because he's the only one she can turn to now. She wanted Spidey's help, but now her brother is dead and it's Spider-Man's fault. Spidey, standing here, wonders how he's going to convince the girl he loves that Spider-Man isn't to blame for her brother's death, but thinks that'll have to wait for another time as Blackie dashes towards the exit. Spidey follows. His heart filled with a burning rage, a vengeful Spider-Man goes after Blackie Gaxton. And we get a great shot of Spidey being spidery and racing along the sheer wall of the ship's passageway on all fours as Blackie fires over his shoulder from the ladder at the end of the hall. Spidey screams, I'll get you, Gaxton. There's no place on earth you can run to now. Dodging the bullet easily as Blackie tells him that he's ruined everything, but he's not done yet. 14 opens to Spidey as the unstoppable object. As Blackie cowers in a corner, his empty gun still raised in his hand, Spidey advances on him menacingly, not even slowing down as two dudes try to tackle him. His Spidey sense ablaze, he carries the men towards Blackie without flinching at all and goes full on James Bond. Dr. No telling Gaxton he counted the shots and Gaxton's empty. You want proof representation matters? I set the same joke up last episode and used Action Jackson as the guy because that's where I first heard the line. I had no idea idea was a bond line. I watched Dr. No on a whim and was shocked. Anyways, representation matters. Back to his spidey sense of blaze. He carries the men towards Blackie Gaxton without flinching at all and goes full on James Bond, Dr. No, telling Gaxton he counted the shots and Gaxton's empty. Spidey reaches Blackie in the next panel and even with the pain in his ankle, even with two guys trying to tackle him to the ground, Spidey grabs Blackie by the collar and lifts the man easily above his head, screaming, there's only one language a killer like you understands, before sending Blackie flying upside down through the air from a right hook that sends the gang lord crashing into two members rushing forward to help him. So Spidey's made short work of Blackie, Gaxton, and company, but business is about to pick up. The next panel, we see Dr. Octopus tossing gang members to the side in the hold of the ship. Others run from him in terror as he screams, Out of my way, you weaklings. I have a score to settle on the deck above. Using L2 and R2, he rises from the hold of the ship onto the top deck where he sees Spidey pummeling the final mobster and screams that this is the moment he's been waiting for since Spidey got him locked away. He says this is the wrap-up. Translation, 
It's time for the showdown. Spidey hears him and gets nervous. He thinks he was afraid of this because he barely beat the one-man hands team last time and he didn't have a bad foot then. In the final panel, Doc Ock sends R1 and L1 racing towards Spidey who leaps oh. out of the way, grabbing a rope overhead thinking he has to keep moving while Doc Ock screams that he's just prolonging the agony because he's going to be caught sooner or later. Ock is planning to maul the golden liability. 15 opens to Dr. Octopus using R1 to snap the rope Spidey is swinging on. He tells Spidey he won't be able to do any more swinging and Spidey replies, Just watch me, Doc. I'll give you a little lesson in aerogymnastics. Quipping. He flips onto a smokestack in the <gasps> next panel away from Doc Ock thinking, as usual, that he wishes he felt as confident as he sounds. But he doesn't have time to dwell on it. Dr. Octopus is right behind him. He screams that Spidey's agility is kid stuff because with his arms propelling him, he's way faster than Spidey. I don't believe that and the wall crawler doesn't either. Leaping from the smokestack, he screams, Is that so? How come I'm always way ahead of you, Big Mouth? And he's absolutely right before grabbing an overhang in the next panel with both hands and swinging into a ha! passageway thinking maybe he can get a breather here. He lands on his ankle and the pain almost buckles him, but he keeps going, throwing his arms wide in front of him to club two more Blackies goons, knocking them out instantly while asking why they don't realize they aren't wanted. In the final panel, he races to the end of the walkway and grabbing the overhang, screams, maybe I can catch Doc Ock off guard by swinging up to the deck behind him. It's worth a try. Before backflipping to the level above him, it's a gorgeous panel. Spidey really is going agility crazy on a bad foot. All chest, no legs. But 16 opens to Doc Ock and you know he's come to play. His lower arms holding him high above the ground. He sends R1 rocketing towards Spidey and manages to grab the webhead's left bicep, screaming, I expected you to try something like that. Now I've got you. But Spidey's not done. He grabs a nearby rope and pulley. Spinning it above his head, he chucks the chaka block at Doc Ock, wrapping up the villain's lower metallic arms, causing Octopus to lose his balance. You with me? Spidey screams, there. Pretty good night, eh? What a boy scout I'd make. Before diving into the cargo hold as Dr. Octopus screams that as soon as he gets out of the rope, he's going to end Spidey's career for good. And Spidey in the final panel is racing through the darkness of the cargo hold, grabbing at his sprained ankle as Doc Ock gives chase. Spidey laments his career choice saying, yeah, some career. No vacations, no pension plan, not even a salary. Go ahead and end it. Who cares? I care, Spidey, keep going. 17 opens to Spidey spinning around and webbing the hatchway behind him shut, thinking that this will stop the rushing doctor. But he couldn't be further from the truth. Ock's mechanical arms punch through his webbing easily as he screams that he'll be through it in a second from the other side. He wasn't lying because the next panel we see the one-man hands team corner our favorite wall crawl on a high platform in the engine room. Using the tools to rise to the platform Spidey's on, he shoots out the ones in both directions, pinning Spidey in and gloating. Now I've got you trapped. But we know the golden liability does some of his best work. From the corner, grabbing a nearby fire extinguisher, Spidey sprays the foam full on in Dr. Octopus's face as the villain sets his human feet on the railing. Spidey screams, Not yet you have it. Have a whiff of some chemical foam from the fire extinguisher first. Spidey thinks, This is nutty. That's like being on a merry-go-round. I'm not doing Betty or myself any good this way. I've got to find a way to beat him. As Doc Ock's arms begin to surround him, we see Spidey, agility on, best ever, huh. dive through the arms ha. under the cover of the phone oh. thinking he's got to make sure Betty is alright. Meantime, there is no honor amongst thieves on this ship as we see two of Blackie's goons below deck in a separate room. One wearing a brown suit, red tie, looks Asian, the other a white guy, SJB suit, maroon tie. They're in the room with the 100 grand and brown suit, closing the lid of the briefcase, tells SJB that in all this commotion, their lives aren't worth a plug nickel. SJB agrees saying he knows what brown suit's getting at and they decide to take the 100,000 and hightail it out of there. 
but they're not going to go alone. Brown suit screams, and we'll take you for a hostage. I've got a hunch Spider-Man won't bother us if he thinks you'll be in danger. And Betty has had enough of the damsel in distress bit. It's a beautifully drawn panel. She's tugging back against the guy grabbing her wrist, slightly crouched, her feet set in her green heels. She struggles against the man screaming, No! Let me go! I don't care if you shoot me. I won't go with you. Do you hear me? I won't. 18 opens with two metal arms shooting out past Betty who covers her eyes as they knock out both men easily. Octopus says, naturally you won't my dear because you're going with me. The shock of the moment makes Betty cover her eyes and faint. The next panel we see Dr. Octopus on the deck of the ship. The briefcase of money held in L1 as he stares out onto the Skookoo where a launch boat is pulling up. He thinks it's good that Betty fainted because now he can kidnap her without her screaming. When he goes to touch her however, he gets clobbered as Spidey hurls himself towards Octopus, crashing his entire body into 008's face, screaming, TAKE YOUR HANDS OFF HER! Spidey in the nick of time throwing 160 pounds of pure arachnal muscle into the one-man hand seen face. Ah. Barely able to get his right arm up to shield himself, screams Spider-Man before they both tumble to the floor together behind an unconscious Betty. Dynamic panel in a golden rod space. Ditko, working. Ox not stupid, seeing the ferocity Spidey just attacked with over Betty, he decides he wants no parts of the girl. Instead, he's gonna get Spidey to follow him onto the launch boat. There in the confined space, he thinks he'll have the advantage over Spidey's agility. Spidey tries to stand and follow, but his ankle gives out and he buckles. He falls back onto the deck as Dr. Octopus leaps over the side of the ship. Straddling the launch with the twos, he lands on the hood of the boat taunting Spidey saying, You want me Spider-Man? Come and get me, if you dare. And Spidey knows it's a trap, but a Spidey's gotta do what a Spidey's gotta do. Web swinging off the side of the ship, his legs out in front of him, he thinks he knows the odds are in his favor on that smaller boat. It'll be harder for me to dodge his arms, but I can't quit now. I just can't. 19 opens to Spidey landing on the roof of the launch boat, both fists raised, ready for action, screaming. I knew they shouldn't have set you free, Octopus, but I've got enough on you now to send you back for a long, long time. Right before Spidey touches down onto the lander. That's bravery because getting in close to Dr. Octopus ain't easy and never advised. The ship captain in a blue hat, pink striped sailor shirt, stares through the window of the captain's deck of the launch in wide-eyed horror. And Oct's been waiting for this moment. He extends his left hand, bolsters right into a fist and screams, you're whistling in the dark, Spider-Man. You'll never leave this launch alive. Right before Spidey touches down onto the launch, huh. Spidey grabs hold of R1 with his right hand to create an opening and swipes at Doc Ock's jaw with his left, but the swing is easily swallowed up by L1 as Dr. Octopus screams, No matter how strong you are, my arms are stronger and even faster. The next panel, the ship's captain has seen enough. Screaming that he agreed to pick up Blackie Gaxton, not too battling Furies, he dies over the side of the speeding ship, having it race up the Skookle with no driver. The Furies are the deities of Venice and Greek mythology who spring from the sea, so some dark sailor's humor as he breaks the cardinal rule of captains and refuses to go down with his ship. Doc Ock, feeling the tide turning, tells Spider-Man he can tell the webhead's getting weaker and that he isn't surprised. Spidey's only got human arms and Doc Ock's extra appendages never get tired. But Spidey's one rule ain't change. Fist, swing him if you got him. And we see Spidey throwing punches that Doc Ock is dodging easily. And Spidey's thinking that the man is right, that he can't take much more of this. I'm sure Spidey could handle it on two legs, but he's been fighting literally on one foot since he landed on top of the launch. Doc Ock can smell his victory. In the middle of their violent tango, he starts monologuing fierce. I've waited a long time for this moment, but I never thought you'd make it so easy for me to get my final revenge. He continues his rant into the final panel. I thought I'd have to search for you to wait. Who's that? 
The camera zooms out and we see a police boat on the Schuylkill approaching the launch as it speeds past. One of the officers screams, Ahoy the ship! This is the police! We noticed your boat out of control! Stand by! We're coming aboard to investigate! Tony opens to Spidey thinking and Dr. Octopus saying essentially the same thing as they fight in a tangle of mechanical arms. Spidey's thinking it's only seconds until the police boat catches up to them and he needs to stop Octopus now. Ox saying he has plenty of time to end the war crawler before the police board. Two men with plans, but what's that old saying of mice and men? The launch smashes headlong into a piling in the next panel, sending both Spidey and Doc flying from the ship and into the Scoopy River. It's a beautiful panel that reminds me of the speedboat chase scene at the end of the movie Face Off starring Nicolas Cage and John Travolta, when both men are hurled from the boat after it crashes into a piling. John Woo getting a little inspiration from the pages of ASM? I can't be deconvinced. Spidey hits the water in the next panel and immediately begins swimming towards shore thinking he got lucky. The crash happened just in the nick of time. Not wanting to explain this to the police, he climbs onto the beach and scrambles up the side of a nearby building, watching Philly PD round up Blackie Gacton's gang. From the sheer wall, Spidey thinks, made it. But it looks as though Doc Ock got away too. Maybe it's just as well. Next time we meet, I don't want to be held back by a useless ankle. And in the final panel, we get a long horizontal shot. Betty, her head down, drying her eyes with a handkerchief, is being escorted by the police chief, who tells her they've got everything under control and she's out of danger. He says when Blackie Gaxton came to, he told the police that Betty was an innocent pawn. Blackie Gaxton didn't have to do that. He's a ruthless mafioso, boss. He did a good thing there. She was not involved. It was my fault. I mean, he's going to jail, but that's pretty noble. Betty's still distraught, of course. None of this news is going to bring Bennett back. Behind them, we see Gaxton's gang, Blackie in front, held at gunpoint by two more officers. One of the officers tells the chief that they've got everybody except Dr. Octopus and Spider-Man, who unbeknownst to the officer, is watching from a nearby rooftop. 21 opens to Spidey taking a seat on the ledge of the roof, pulling the boot from his right leg. He says, well, it's all over for now. As for me, if I wrap enough webbing tight around my ankle, I may be able to change to Peter Parker and walk without too much of a limp. The next panel, we see him web his ankle up securely while removing his mask, his street clothes in a neat folded pile beside him, as he continues. There, this will have to do. Now I've got to go to Betty. With her brother gone, she's all alone in the world. She'll need me more than ever. But now I can never tell her that I'm really Spider-Man. If I do, I'm sure to lose her forever. I'll have to keep my secret locked up inside me. For all time. That's so heartbreaking, Spidey. Like, Spidey is now a huge part of who Peter Parker is. If he has to keep this part of himself locked up inside of him for all time. That's a sad thought, so I can imagine how Pete's feeling right now. He probably feels like he could never be his full and true self with the girl that he loves. And so, the next panel we see the Goldenrod Kid back in the home of Bennett Brent, the girl he loves in his arms. Betty is wearing all black and mourning for her brother and is holding a handkerchief to her eyes. Pete says, I'm glad the police cleared you, Betty, but I know how you must feel about your brother. And Betty replies, Oh, Peter, he was always so weak, so headstrong. He got into bad company while he was at college. But still, I loved him. Poor Bennett. At least he ended like a man. So we know Betty's big on the ideas of honor and chivalry in men and is at least happy Bennett showed bravery in the end and protected her. The next panel, she walks over to the fireplace and we get a great close-up of her as she fiddles with the candlestick holder there, a tear running down her left eye. She says, In my shock, my rage, I blamed Spider-Man for his death. I realize now how wrong I was. It wasn't his fault. He was trying to help us. But still... I never want to see Spider-Man again. I couldn't bear being reminded of Bennett. Pete is just standing here wearing a stoic expression. He doesn't say anything as Betty continues into the next panel. Can you understand that, Peter? Or do I sound like a fool? Pete, stand-up guy that he is, replies, You could never sound like a fool to me, Betty. Of course I understand. And I'm sure Spider-Man would too, if he knew. But I know Pete's hurting. The final panel, we get a caption box. And then Peter Parker leaves Betty alone with her grief. 
as he slowly walks into the night, little dreaming of the new adventures and surprises which await him. And we see Pete walking Broad Street alone, his head down in the darkness, a full moon and twinkling stars in the sky above, his back to us, the burden of Spider-Man gigantic and looming large above him in the Philadelphia darkness. It's a beautiful panel. What a way to end it. And we're out. Me and my best friend Pete, old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns, kind of kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. So the credits on this one, we have smiling Stan Lee writing. We have swinging Steve Ditko on art. And we got art, it's in the name, Simic. Welcome back, Art Simic, and Art Simic is doing the lettering. The cover of this one, we have the title, The Amazing Spider-Man and Spidey New Roman atop the webbing as always. The lettering is red with blue shadowing. We've got a goldenrod background on this one, so you already know I'm gearing up for a slugfest and I won't be disappointed if the cover is any indication. In the foreground, clockwise from stage left, we see a police officer, SJB colored police uniform with a look of disbelief on his face, next to none other than J. Jonah Jameson himself. He's wearing a brown hat and blazer with a green tie and his right fist is clenched. On his face, pure shock. There are wrinkled lines above his eyebrows. JJ is drawn beautifully here. There's another officer beside JJ, his back to us, probably Bill Tomas. And if that's Tomas, you know the police cap next to it is being worn by Blow for Blow Joe. Beside the police cap, we see the off-kidnapped but never distressed damsel, Betty Brent. Her brunette hair in a flawless bob as usual. She's wearing a bronze colored blouse with an interlocking ring design and has her left hand to her mouth with concern and fear in her eyes. There's a final police officer beside her. He can't believe what he's seeing. In the background of the cover, stage right, we see none other than 008, the one man hands team, Dr. Otto Octavius, AKA Dr. Octopus. His bow haircut is a little ragged. He's in need of a barber, but something tells me Ock's not a man who cares about fashion. He's wearing a green long sleeve shirt and green slacks with his construction tins and as always, his Kanye shades. He has both his hands curled into fists, his left out in front of him, his right raised triumphantly. I'm convinced at this point, Dr. Puss's fleshy arms are just around for decoration because while they're celebrating his victory, we see his metal arms working. All four of them are stretched out in front of him a good 10 feet away as they hold a splayed out Spider-Man in their grip. R1, that's the upper metal arm, right side is gripping Spidey's left bicep. R2, the webhead's left thigh. L2, that's the lower left metal arm, is gripping Spidey's right bicep. And L1 is doing the unthinkable. In the clutches of the three-pronged metal arm, we see none other than Spidey's mask. Ock has unmasked our hero in front of the last two people he ever wanted to know his secret identity. If you want to see fear on faces drawn right, you have got to see Spidey's face on this cover. His mouth wide, his head thrown back, his eyes are pinpoints in his head as they stare in horror, upside down, into the eyes of J. Jonah Jameson. Just in case anybody thinks this is a wild fever dream, a giant blue caption box tells us different. Not a dream, not an imaginary tale. You'll gasp in amazement when Peter is unmasked by Dr. Octopus. This is a dynamic, beautiful cover. And we're off. Page one is set in a white negative space. On top, we've got the sign of the spider, Spider-Man's name curved inside of its borders. And to its right, the title on this one, Unmasked by Dr. Octopus. In the center of the page, we see the golden liability, Spider Pete, suited and booted with his head down, the fear and surprise on his face from the cover replaced with an eyes closed look of defeat. He's clutching his mask in his right hand, and I'm gonna guess this is after 008 ripped his mask off. We have four number pictures surrounding Spidey. The first, labeled one, is an image of Dr. Octopus standing slightly squatted with his mechanical arms stretching out wide in front of him. Next to the number one, it reads, Take one of the most powerful supervillains of all time. Next to the number two, we have another caption box. Add a spine-tingling assortment of wild beasts on the rampage. Beneath it, we see a large black bear on its hind feet. Beside it, the biggest of the big cats, a lion walking forward. 
Next to the lion, if you're expecting the tiger, no way. We see a large brown gorilla hanging from the side of a building. Back on stage right, we get the third label. Mix well with our usual cast of offbeat characters. Beneath it, we have four headshots. First, Betty Brant staring up at Spider Pete with a look of wide-eyed concern. Next to her, Aunt May smiling with closed eyes up at Spidey Pete. Beneath Betty, we get a headshot of the Brand X kid himself. It's a great headshot. He's staring out of the corner of his eye with, dare I say, an expression of jealousy on his face. I dare. You do? Oh yeah. And I think the headshot next to him, that of the lovely Liz Allen, is his reason for the salt. She's staring up at the goldenrod liability with a look we've never seen. If I didn't know any better, I'd say she was feeling the kid. The final numbered panel reads, And top it off with the expose of Spider-Man, who could ask for anything more. And beneath it, we see JJ the tie raider working. He's in a white collared shirt, his red tie loose. He's sitting in front of a typewriter, a cigar clenched in his teeth, smoke rising from the cigar towards the caption box. There's a pinup of Spider-Man's head on the wall behind him in case JJ's lacking inspiration, but I doubt it. He's so angry he's only typing with his right hand and shaking an angry left fist. Beneath Spider-Pete's feet we get a yellow screen caption box telling us that Stan and Steve pulled out all the stops to make this a memorable issue and the least we can do is enjoy it and rave about it and you know something? We have a hunch you will. Here's a final caption box touting the credits on this one. Written in the white heat of inspiration by Stan Lee. Drawn in a wild frenzy of enthusiasm by Steve Ditko. Lettered in a comfortable room by Art Simek. Man said Stan had a fever dream for this one. Let's get into it. Page two opens as it often does with a caption box. As all of our well-read readers know, Spider-Man battled Dr. Octopus last issue, and while the amazing teenager foiled the supervillain's plans, he was unable to prevent his escape. Hence these headlines in the bugle. And we see beneath it a daily bugle cover. On its left, a picture of Spidey's head in profile. On its right, a picture of Dr. Octopus, eyes grilling us straight on. The headline reads, Dr. Octopus escapes from Spider-Man. And beneath it, we get a column telling us that Spidey has once again interfered in police business. And because of it, another dangerous criminal has escaped. The column goes on to ask how much longer we as a people will allow Spidey to make a mockery of justice. Believe me, Daily Bugle, Spidey ain't the one out here making a mockery of justice. You should see the headlines in the papers from last week in the real world. Next panel, we see Spidey crawling down the sheer wall of the Daily Bugle. 39th Street, 2nd Avenue, Midtown. Limestone building, you can't miss it. Lights are glowing softly in the window, Spidey's scaling past, and Spidey is pissed. He's thinking, if I put out a forest fire single-handed, I'll bet Jonah would rent me from wasting too much water. Say, what's going on in his office? And we hear someone scream they quit from an office window, telling the person they're screaming at that nobody could work for a tyrant like them. I know and you know who that is, but just to be sure, we're gonna keep going. Spidey crawls up to JJ's office window, eavesdropping as he often does, and we see JJ, white shirt, brown pants, his arms wide, screaming at the back of a cherry blonde haired woman wearing a green blouse and blue skirt. JJ's saying she can't do this, that he needs a secretary. And Cherry tells him, you need a lot more than that. You need a psychiatrist. She's throwing the papers in her hands on the floor and she's getting out of there. The next panel, we get a great panel of Jameson tie rating. He's loosened his red tie and he's rummaging through his filing cabinet. He says, hmm, blamed employees. They expect to be treated with kid gloves just because I shouted at her. Dick Cole's drawing two heads to show JJ whipping his neck around quickly, and when he does, he sees none other than Betty Brandt. She's in a stylish purple jacket with matching skirt, her pink clutch bag, and pearls around her neck. She tells Jameson she's returned if he'll still have her. And JJ, busy man, way past busy enough, tells her not to just stand there and orders her to get back to work. Spidey, watching this from outside the window, scales up the sheer wall of the building to the roof saying he's going to change out of his Spidey costume because he can't wait to see and talk to Betty. Off panel, we see Betty's thinking the same. She asks Jameson if Peter Parker's dropped off any photos lately and Jameson snaps. He says, no, I haven't seen him. He's probably too lazy to work, just like everyone else I get stuck with. 
Minutes later, we see the Goldenrod Kid SJB suit arms tie enter Jameson's office. Peter's a freelance photographer who never knocks. His pics of Spidey must be amazing because nobody walks into Jay-Z's office without knocking. Pete catches sight of Betty already back to work having cleaned up the stack of papers for replacement toss and he says he's been waiting to hear from her. But JJ's not having it. Cigar in his mouth, he tells Pete they're in an office, not a social club, and Pete can enter his office only when he has pics before telling the young goldenrod to get, I get. Betty, all smiles, tells Pete that she'll see him later and to call her at home. Page three opens to a caption box. Meanwhile, at different places throughout the nation, moving from city to city like the elusive marauder he is, the awesome Dr. Octopus attempts some of the most colorful crimes ever perpetrated. In the long panel beneath the caption box, we see Dr. Octopus in the green suit from the cover, pulling off heist that took the big man and entire crime family to complete alone. We see 008 on the top of a speeding armored car first, his metal arms on the corners of the roof as the truck speeds beneath an overpass. And Octopus is saying the truck is no match for his power. He's gonna peel that tin lid back like a sardine can. Next we see him beneath a purple helicopter. L1 and R1 attached to the wheels of the airship and Ox says the police are onto him now so he can't use the same trick twice. But with all those arms, he's a master of sleight of hand and has plenty of tricks. We see him crouched on an awning above a bank entrance next as R2 snatches a bag of money from the hands of a brown suited bank teller while two police officers look on helpless. He flees the scene, climbing to the top of a red water tower, and we know Ox fully accepted his role as a supervillain because now he's monologuing out loud. He says that he has to continue robbing and stealing so Spider-Man will attack him again. In the next panel, he takes a seat atop the water tower and continues. I know I'm stronger than he is. I know that I'll destroy him when next we meet. But so long as he lives, I'll never be truly safe. I've got to force him to fight me again. But why hasn't he followed me? I've given him every chance, all the bait he needs. Perhaps I'll have to return to New York and find him. Ock wants Spidey to chase him across America like he's Carmen Sandiego. The next panel, we see why Spidey hasn't gone after Dr. Octopus. He's sitting at the kitchen table, a glass of water and stack of books piled high above it, pencil in his left hand, orange button up on his back, and Aunt May is standing over him, olive green sweater, blue dress. She has a hand on his forehead and she's telling him he has to stay home because she thinks he's getting a cold. And Pete thinks, if only I could head out west where Doc Ock was last reported, but I have the money for the fair and my interim exams are coming up soon, and Aunt May would never let me go anyway. Pete's got finals, a cold, and probably doesn't think he can hitchhike all the way across the country on the outside of a plane. So he's grounded for more reasons than one. The next day. The final panel, we see the Brand X kid himself, Flash Thompson, holding a newspaper. He's wearing a bumblebee yellow sweater with triangles running across it horizontally. We have two brunies here, a boy wearing a dark red blazer and a girl in a blue dress, and this here in a red v-neck blouse. The Goldenrod kid is walking up to the group, SJB suit, of course, Goldenrod vest and red tie. He's got a book under his arm and he's making his way towards school. He's hoping someday Dr. Octopus returns to New York so they can have their rematch when he spots the gang and wonders what they're reading about. Flash says the Daily Bugle is still calling Spider-Man a fake and a coward and adds that he'd like to see Jameson go one-on-one -on -one with the one-man hands team. And Flash may be brighter than I've given him credit for. Page four opens to a close-up of a spider in the paper and Flash points out the propaganda saying, look, the Bugle even has a picture of a spider trying to show how dangerous they are and claiming that Spider-Man must be dangerous too. While someone else, probably Bruni Boy, says Bookworm Parker's walking up and says they should see what Pete knows about spiders. The next panel, we see half-man, half-amazing Pete rock in the foreground as he walks past Liz and Flash. And as usual, when the gang brings up spiders, men, red, blue, or anything else his neurotic mind thinks can tie him to the webhead, Pete Rock thinks he needs to be careful of his response before saying he hates spiders, that they're ugly and icky, and he'd rather not even talk about them. Man called spiders icky. 
Flash jumps on a chance to bust Pete's chop, saying, Know what I like about you, Parker? You're such a rugged, fearless He-Man. As Liz watches from behind him, smiling, the bell for class rings and the kids make their way into the building, one of them saying to escort Parker in by the arm because he may step on an anthill and faint. Pete, standing in a red negative space, thinks, Go ahead, laugh, you burbering clown. Someday everyone will realize that it's only the people who are inferior themselves that keep picking on others. How about that? I'm beginning to sound like a teenage Billy Graham. Billy Graham was a prominent American evangelist and ordained Southern Baptist minister from North Carolina who was internationally known during his lifetime for his work in spreading Christianity throughout the world and fighting for racial equality during the civil rights movement here in the United States. His work led to him working side by side and building a close personal friendship with Martin Luther King Jr., becoming a spiritual advisor to several presidents from Eisenhower to Barack Obama and receiving a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I can see how if you're Pete, one part heroically righteous, one part sensation of the nation, a man like Billy Graham would be a person you'd know in Parrot. Back to. Not long afterwards, Betty Brent receives a mysterious phone call. We see Betty at her desk in a Daily Bugle, the receiver of her phone pressed against her ear, and she looks a little afraid. She says that this is Betty and asks who's there. She waits a moment and asks why doesn't the person answer. On the other end of the line, we see who's calling, and I'm sure for Betty, outside of Blackie Gaxton, it's the last person she wants to hear from, as we see a metal three-pronged arm holding a receiver, Dr. Octopus. From off-panel, Dr. Octopus says, Good. Now that I know she is back working for the Daily Bugle, I'll be able to use her as bait to catch Spider-Man. He risked his life to help her once before, so why not again? And we get a caption box letting us know this happened back in Amazing Spider-Man number 11. We rode the crazy train on that issue in the What If Bennett Was Definitely In It episode here on Me and My Friend Pete. Ock's not a dumb man. Spider-Man hurled his body, 165 pounds of muscle, at Dr. Octopus's head in the last issue for touching Betty. So Ock's banking on the golden liability, playing hero a second time. This reminds me of the Dark Knight when Joker snatched up Rachel Dawes after seeing the way Batman abandoned a whole room of hostages to dive out of a window to save her. To the most ruthless of villains, their beef with heroes always blows over to the people, specifically the women in the hero's life. Off on a tangent for a bit, snatching women up and harming them is a trope so often used in comic books that it has been labeled by the great comics writer Gail Simone as women in refrigerators. She coined the term after reading Green Lantern number 54, where Green Lantern Kyle Rayner's girlfriend was killed and shoved into his refrigerator by a villain named Major Force. I've added a link to the website Gail Simone created chronicling this practice of harming women for shock value in comics in the show notes on the Patreon page. Back to the next panel, we see Betty, her left hand to her cheek. Whenever Betty's worried, she's going to throw a hand up to her cheek. And she's thinking, he hung up. It sounded like, oh no, that's impossible. It can't be. Jameson, standing behind her, watching her, tells her to hang up the phone and get back to work because he doesn't pay her to daydream. But it's to note, he looks a lot more put together than we've seen him in the last issue and a half. He has a brown suit on, red tie, and he's back to being the dapper paper magnate. He won't admit it, but we can see from this alone that Betty makes his life infinitely easier. Then, towards the end of the day... The Goldenrod Kid has returned to Jameson's office, and Jameson tells him nothing's changed. If he doesn't have pictures, he needs to get out. Pete apologizes and says he's here to pick up Betty. Betty says she'll be with Pete as soon as he finishes the letter she's working on. But suddenly, a mocking, menacing form appears at the window. And we see the one-man hands team leap into the window, his metallic arms bracing on the frame and floor, as he calls Pete Sonny and tells him not to hold his breath because he has other plans for Betty. Pete screams, Dr. Octopus, here in New York! Stepping into the room as Betty says that she knew it was Octopus on the phone. 
Jameson doesn't say anything at all, but somewhere between this panel and the last, he's rolled up his sleeves and is taking a step toward Octopus to put himself between Betty and the danger. Jameson's a busy man, and if Ox snatches Betty up again, he's going to be back to being way past busy enough, and JJ's not having that. It's a beautiful panel. But the beauty continues dangerously onto page 5 as we see a metal tentacle wrap around the waist of the frightened Betty Brant and lift her from the floor. Ox shows a little kidnapper chivalry saying, Don't be alarmed, young lady. You will not be harmed. But nobody believes that. If you recall, Ock made what I can only classify as an unwanted advance on Betty last issue in Bennett's apartment, pinning her against the wall with the metal ones. And she hasn't forgotten it either. She screams, No! No! Don't! You can't! Help! Then, before Peter or Jonah Jameson can make a move, we see Pete and JJ lifted from the floor by the waist by two more metal arms, as Octopus says that just in case either of the two men try anything heroic, this will stop them from interfering. And man, if JJ isn't wearing his big boy pants today, he screams, Don't just dangle there, Parker. Tell him who I am. That is John Jonah swinging past his knees, Jameson Jr., the Tie Raider. I think to JJ's credit, it needs to be said that he self-admitted to thinking he isn't as brave as Spidey, but Jameson's pretty brave when the pressure's on, always. He's got his jaw into an uproar at Electro and the Vulture, so this isn't out of character. Pete's not worried about letting Dr. Octopus know who JJ is, though. He's got his own problems. In the next panel, we see Pete Rock held in the air around the waist, his right fist clenched, his left hand open. Spidey sends a blaze as he thinks, I can't fight back now. Not in front of Betty and Jameson. It would give my identity away. I gotta bide my time. In the fourth panel, Ock, holding a raised fleshy fist above his head, his three hostages dangling in his metallic grip, makes his demand. He says no one will be hurt if they listen. He tells JJ to put an ad in the bugle, telling Spider-Man to contact him. When Spidey does, Ock says, he wants JJ to tell Spidey that he's grabbed Betty Brant and taken her to Coney Island, saying if Spidey wants her, he has to come get her alone. Before dumping JJ and Pete onto their butts unceremoniously in the next panel, he says JJ can send one photographer to Coney Island to capture pictures of Spidey's defeat. And Jameson says he's sending Parker before he even touches the floor, as Pete wonders how he's going to finesse being both Spider-Man and Peter Parker at the same time for this. In the final panel, Dr. Octopus climbs out of the window, scaling the sheer out wall with Betty trapped in the clutches of R1 as Jameson and Spidey stare up at him. Octopus says Spider-Man has to show up alone, and if the police come, he lets our imaginations run wild as to what he'll do, but my mind is already on refrigerators. Jameson says he's got to print an extra, and he hopes Spidey sees it. As Pete screams, Betty, don't be afraid. Spider-Man will save you. Another masterpiece page from Letters to Art. Triple S working right now, and they're just getting started. And then, as a special extra edition of The Bugle hits the newsstands, Jameson, standing behind his desk, is pointing at Pete's back to open page six, and he's telling the Golden Rod kid to get down to Coney Island and bring plenty of film. He says if Pete botches this assignment, he'll have his high. And Pete, a close hand to his forehead, heading towards the door, says that nothing could keep him away. But he thinks he's feeling kind of woozy, and that Aunt May may be right, that he may really be coming down with something. But like Pete said, nothing will keep him away from this action. He leaves the office, finds an alley, and is back in Jameson's office on a sheer wall in no time. A daily bugle clucks in his fist as he pops the sign of the spider on Jameson, casting the paper magnate in its red glow. He asks Jameson what he wants, saying that he saw the notice in the extra. And Jameson, even knowing he needs Spidey's help, refuses to be civil. He screams, You! Turn off that blasted beam! I'm not impressed with your phony theatrics! Betty Brent has been captured by Dr. Octopus! Then, after Jameson has explained, Spidey scaling the Daily Bugle to get to the roof and head for Coney Island when he realizes it's harder for him to stick to walls than usual. He thinks he must really be getting sick. Meanwhile, J. 
Jay Jonah in front of a red negative space, his hands to his mouth, admits that Pete's got skills and is his best photographer, but he doesn't want to take the chance of the kid botching this job before deciding to head to Coney Island himself. He grabs his bowler, throws his blazer on, and double times it out of the office monologuing. It's midwinter, so the amusements will all be shut down for the season. I'll make sure that Dr. Octopus doesn't see me, but I'll have a chance to observe whatever happens firsthand. And atop the highest roller coaster at the amusement park. In reality, Betty, hands tied behind her back, is on top of a Ferris wheel, trapped at its highest point. Octopus scaling it to meet her. He says Spider-Man has to have seen the paper by now and should be arriving at any moment for his final battle. And Betty asks, what if he doesn't show up? In the final panel, we see 008 holding Betty around the waist with R1 as he descends the Ferris wheel. And I'm starting to worry his human arms are going to atrophy. The only thing they've done this issue is bald fist and hold one money bag. The guy is wholly dependent on the R's and the L's. Regardless, in response to Betty asking what happens if Spidey doesn't show, he says, That would be too bad, my dear, for you. And now, I'll lower you to the ground so the photographer can easily get good pictures of my victory over that masked fool. Those pictures, for the world to see, will be Spider-Man's greatest humiliation. To Ock's credit, he understands Spider-Man a lot better than most villains the webhead's faced so far. He knows the webhead, despite being a hero, is pretty prideful, and the only thing worse than beating our hero is embarrassing him as well. And that's what Dr. Octopus wants to do. He wants to embarrass the golden liability. He wants to make Spider-Man look bad for the whole world to see. Is this your sensation of your nation? Look at him. That's what I imagine he's thinking. Ock drops Betty off on the ground to open page seven and turns to climb higher ground, saying Parker's not here yet, and he better show or he'll live to regret it. Betty, damsel, never in distress, begins using her fingernails to dig into the rope binding her wrist, thinking if she keeps trying, she can free herself while Doctopus isn't looking. The next panel, we see the golden liability, suited and booted, entering the Coney Island amusement park, and right away we can see something is off. Why? Spidey is on foot. Yeah, I mean on the ground. Spidey hardly ever walks along the street, so this is already a bad sign. A bad sign confirmed as he presses his hand against the wall of a roller coaster to steady himself. He says, Can hardly stand. My feet feel like rubber. Of all the time for me to get a virus attack. But I can't let it stop me. I've got to save Betty. Gotta find Dr. Octopus. He continues into the next panel, a profile shot of Spidey in a light blue negative space. If only I didn't feel so weak. If I could just lie down for Wait, there he is. I've got to go through with it now. The next panel, we see Betty in a shadow, having freed herself from the ties that bind, sprinting towards the entrance to the amusement park towards the legendary Cyclone roller coaster. Damsel on the move. Fun fact, I'm a lifelong New Yorker, and I know no lifelong New Yorkers, myself included, who have ever ridden the Cyclone. If you have and you're a lifelong New Yorker, let me know in the comments, because you're a braver person than us, and I want to tell you so personally, because that thing creaks on the breeze from a whistle. Back to Ah, glancing over his shoulder, spots Betty making a mad dash for the exit and screams he's going to catch her, and this time, he won't be so forgiving. He turns and begins chasing after her, but we're in a goldenrod negative space, so you know Spider-Man, the golden liabilities, not having it, and he leaps at Dr. Octopus thinking, ah, Carpe Nunca. Translation, it's now or never, while grabbing Doc Ock around the shoulders, screaming he's got him. In the final panel, we see Spidey's gotten the hard part out of the way. He's in close where Doc Ock's metal arms can't reach him as easily, and thinking he's gotta knock Dr. Octopus out with one punch, because whatever's wrong with him has him feeling weak, so he's not going to hold back. He can't afford to hold back. Betty is in danger. He's gotta give it all he got. He swings, chin-checking 008 with an uppercut, a one-hitter quitter, a Sunday punch, a little lunch. But the biffs a whiff and barely lifts Ock's chin as Spidey thinks, Oh, no! no. I tried my best, but my spider strength is gone. 
It was just a weak, meaningless punch. He hardly felt it. And Ock's not impressed either. He screams, What sort of stun is this, Spider-Man? I know you can hit harder than that. If this is some sort of trick, it'll do you no good. You won't be given a second chance. And Ock knows Spidey knows how to throw a punch because Spidey knocked Ock out cold in their second scrap. At this point, if you count it, they've fought three times already, and Ock knows by personal experience, firsthand, literally, that Spider-Man has one rule, fist. Swing him if you got him. And when he swing him, it's sledgehammers coming. So Ock's a little bit confused right now. We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, 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 Infinity Page. Page eight. Just in time to see Doc Ock with the worst boxing form ever snap Spidey's head back with a right cross in his fleshy hand as R2 wraps around the wrist of the wall crawler. And Spidey's reeling. His spider strength gone. It doesn't matter that Ock doesn't have form because Pete is now a kid with no powers and can barely stay on his feet from the blow. And Ock's getting pissed. He tells Spidey to fight back, that he doesn't want his victory watered down. This reminds me of the scene in the movie Troy when Hector, played by Eric Bana, trips over the rock and Achilles tells him, Get up! Get up, Prince of Joy! No rock is going to steal my glory. Right? Like, I want to beat you at your best. Get up. I'm not going to take advantage of you this way. Fight back. And that's how Ock is on it right now. He clocks Spidey with another right cross in the next panel, calling him a human punching bag. And Spidey thinks another blow like that, and I'm finished. But Spidey's wrong. He passes out right there. This is the first time Spidey has ever been knocked unconscious in a fight. And of course it has to be the one-man hands team to do it. We get a gorgeous dynamic panel in a goldenrod negative space next. The moment right before the cover of the issue. As Dr. Octopus holds Spidey up with his metallic arms. L1 tugging at our hero's mask. He says he can't believe it. That Spidey isn't even struggling as he removes his mask. Betty, J. Jonah, and two police officers run up. Betty pointing out the action, saying Octopus is beating Spider-Man. Jameson's response lets us know he may hate the webhead, but he recognizes the skills. He says, So quickly, how? And where's Parker? He should be photographing this. As the two officers say, it's a good thing Betty called them. In the final panel, we see the cover of this issue up close as L1 removes the mask from Pete's face, bringing the hero's most neurotic fear to life. But this moment may work to Spider-Pete's benefit. Because Spidey didn't show his usually amazing prowess with his hands team, the two people most likely to believe he's Spider-Man may now never believe he's Spider-Man. But I don't think that's any consolation to half-man, half-amazing Spider-Pete in this moment. And Ox says he knew it couldn't be Spider-Man. And you already know, Betty's nervous, she has a hand to her cheek, as she thinks Pete did this for her, and he could have been killed. Jameson's unimpressed. He screams, The fool! I ordered him to take pictures of Octopus, not try to be a hero! But the final word is a question from a cop who hearing JJ and staring at a 15-year-old kid just beaten unconscious ask, you mean you knew Octopus was here? To close the page. Nine opens with Spider-Pete being tossed into Jameson and the police officer unceremoniously as Dr. Octopus screams, Bah! Shout out Take to your puny hero. He's of no interest to me. It's the real Spider-Man I'm after. He pushes off the ground with the twos and in no time is racing along the Cyclone roller coaster saying he was sure Spider-Man would show up. He thinks the police might have scared Spidey off and says he'll find him no matter what and won't rest till he smashes him. We shift back to Spidey and company and see Jameson on his butt again, his bowler hat at his side as the police officer rounds on him screaming, Jameson, next time you withhold information from us, it'll go hard with you. If you had told us about this, we would have set a trap for Octopus and caught him by now. But you thought more of an exclusive story than anything else. And the officer's right. Jameson's main point against Spider-Man has always been that he interferes in matters better left to law enforcement. And now, he's just been caught doing the exact same thing. Maybe worse, because the life of two minors were seriously at risk. 
But JJ's always been do as I say, not as I do. And I imagine he doesn't trust the police as much as he expects them to do what he says as a wealthy taxpayer. I don't trust them or expect them to do what I say as a working class taxpayer. So I understand half of what he may be thinking. Abolish the police. Back to the next panel, we see Spider Pete, his head cradled in Betty's hands, his own left pressed to his forehead, the cop kneeling down in front of him, and JJ in the background, his hand on the brim of his bowler. Betty says, oh, Peter, Peter, you dear, foolish, wonderful boy. Why did you do it? If anything had happened to you. While Jameson, in the sake of self-interest, thinks, I better not yell at Parker now in front of the police. They're angry enough at me now. This sure was one big flop. He doesn't care at all that Pete's hurt. He wants to save face. I shouldn't have done this and I have to be quiet right now. But if the police officer wasn't here, I'd tear that kid a new one. That's what he's thinking. The police officer commends Pete, saying he must be one brave kid to tackle Dr. Octopus impersonating Spidey like that and tells Betty he'll escort Pete home. Hours later, at home. We see Pete in bed asleep with a fretful expression on his face. Aunt May is at his bedside, her hand in Peter's hair, staring down at her favorite person in the world. She says a policeman brought him home and told her he fainted. Her mommy sense on infinity, she says she knew he was coming down with something. The doctor, gray hair, olive blazer, horn rim glasses, same guy who came to check on Aunt May when she was ill. So the family doctor, we'll call him Dr. Fam for future reference, says Peter has a 24 hour virus. Packing his stethoscope away in his doctor's bag, Fam says the virus makes a person as weak as a kitten for a day, but Pete should be fine by morning. And that's good, because Pete's having fever dreams tonight. As Peter sleeps, his rest is broken by a troubled dream. And we see Spider-Man chastising a sleeping Peter, hovering over Pete in a white cloud of dream smoke. He says, what are you, some kind of nut or something? You should have your head examined for appearing as Spider-Man when you were so weak. You know viruses are the one thing even your spider strength can't resist. Pete, in shades of dreaming blue, replies, but I was so worried about Betty. So worried. That's the girl he loves. We've seen Pete go to great lengths to save Flash Thompson, a kid he despises. So you gotta know he wasn't gonna wait around for someone else to rescue Betty. That's his girl Friday. And on top of that, when did Spider-Man ever reference that? Viruses were the one thing that made him weak. This was never spoken about. We know Johnny the Human Torch got a virus and his power started acting up. Coincidentally, in the first appearance of Dr. Octopus. That's the We Didn't Start the Fire episode here on Me and My Friend Pete. Then comes the next morning, more than 24 hours after the virus has struck. And we see the goldenrod kid backflipping out of his bed. He's not sick anymore, but his pajamas are. My man is wearing the finest silk pajamas. Mid-flip, he's saying he feels like a zillion bucks again and goes on to say, I got the old spider strings back. The old zingaroo. The old zingaroo. How do you do? Ten opens to Pete's back to us as he gets suited and booted in his Spidey costume. His mask is resting on top of a white bundle. He's saying he knows Aunt May saw the costume inside and he needs to move fast. As Aunt May screams as she hears him moving and she's coming upstairs because she needs to talk to him. She enters his room wearing a green one-piece dress and pink apron with a wagging left finger. She says, I received a strange costume from the police this morning and I heard what really happened to you last night. How could you possibly take such a chance impersonating that dreadful Spider-Man? And Pete, the white bundle in his hand, says he'll never do it again and he's taking the costume outside right now to burn it, hoping she doesn't guess that the bundle is now filled with rags. Later at school. We get Flash Thompson in the foreground wearing a yellow polo shirt, nice shirt. He's standing next to Bruni's boy and girl and pointing over his shoulder at Pete, who's walking into school, SJB suit, orange tie. Flash screams, hey look, here comes the big hero, Fearless Parker in the flesh. Both Bruni smile and Pete thinks Flash is never going to let him live this down. But who's Flash to talk? When he impersonated Spidey back in ASM number 5, The Golden Liability, Always Another Day episode here on Me and My Friend Pete, 
He was captured by Dr. Doom and begged for his life without even getting a punch off. Liz rushes up to Pete wearing a red blouse and brown skirt. She asks Pete why he would ever bother to impersonate Spider-Man. Pete, his head down in the next panel, Liz's hand on his shoulder says he doesn't want to talk about it if she doesn't mind. But Liz is impressed. Smiling, she says it was the most wonderful thing she's ever heard of, while Flash waves a dismissive hand behind her, telling her that Parker didn't really expect to run into Dr. Octopus, he was just clout chasing for kicks. And Liz snaps! Rounding on Flash in the next panel, she says, Let me tell you something, Flash Thompson. As far as I'm concerned, Peter Parker proved he has enough courage to match his brains. And as for you, my dear ex-boyfriend, you've got neither. As Pete watches in shock, wondering what changed with Liz because she never knew he was alive before. And everybody's in shock right now. Flash the most as he asks Liz what she's mad at him for. Meanwhile, the angry Dr. Octopus rips the newspapers to shreds in a fit of savage fury. And we see Dr. Octopus sitting on a crate in his hideout. Every hand, fleshy or pincered, has shredded newspaper in it. He screams, they're making a laughing stock of me, saying that I was fooled by a teenager. Well, they'll all be laughing out of the other sides of their mouths before I'm through with them. He is going to lose it. Everything he does to bring Spider-Man down only brings more embarrassment upon himself. Since defeating Spider-Man the first time, Spidey is giving him L's left and right, whether it's punches to the jaw or punches to his reputation. Octopus must hate this kid. Eleven opens to him snapping a wooden beam in two with his metal arms as he screams Spider-Man won't be able to hide from him any longer. And I think business is about to pick up. Doc Ock leaves his secret basement lair in the next panel, racing up the street on his metal arms. A man in a JJP suit spots him and decides to cross the street. Doc Ock screams that he's through hiding and today will be a day that the people will never forget because today all New Yorkers are going to learn the power of Dr. Octopus. Later, at the outskirts of the zoo, in New York, there's only one zoo worth mentioning as simply the zoo, so I know we're in the Bronx and we get a gorgeous panel of two male lions and a leopard moving as big cats do. Ditko is amazing. These are beautifully drawn lions and this leopard is gorgeous. What can't this man do? Shout out through the ether to Steve Ditko. Always, always working. But this is dangerous because Doctopus freed them from their cages. The leopard in particular is snarling and moving toward a fleeing crowd of men. The guy in the back wearing a full blood red suit screams, Run! The wild beast are loose! Dr. Octopus set them all free! Help! Somebody help! And somebody called 911. Seconds later, you know no other than Joe and Tomas arrived on the scene. We see Tomas holding one end of the net as he screams, Careful, Joe! This baby's a killer! Joe, holding the other end of the net, dies at the leopard saying, We can't afford to be careful, Bill. Too many lives may be at stake. So now, Tomas' name is William Tomas, and we see the two police officers catch the leopard in the net. It's a great panel in a goldenrod negative space. Meanwhile, a short distance away, speaking of goldenrod, we see none other than Peter Parker, the goldenrod kid himself, looking over his shoulder as Liz Allen chases behind him, and chasing her, the brand X kid himself, Flash Thompson. This is a train of chase. Liz is screaming at Pete to hold up. She says she wants to walk home with him because she has to ask him something, and Flash is upset. Scowling, he tells Liz he thought they were going bowling this afternoon, as Pete thinks, This is nuts! Liz wouldn't give me a trouble before. But now, she's following me around like a lovesick child. My, how the turntable! Pete doesn't have time for this new energy. Betty's his girl and Pete's not stepping out. He races around the corner to open page 12 and leaping up, grabs a flagpole and swings himself to the roof of a nearby building. It's another great panel and makes me wish Spidey fought crime with that best ever agility in a suit. Back on the ground, Liz, her hands on her shoulders, tells Flash she'd thank him to stop following her around. And Flash tries to remind her that she said Pete isn't her type. 
Spidey suited and booted on the rooftop above the two, isn't paying any attention to Liz tell Flash off, off panel. He's more focused on the shouting up ahead and races towards it. But Liz tells Flash, Well, perhaps I've grown mature enough to realize a boy needs more than a football letter to really be a man. The Goldenrod Kid has wooed Liz Allen, but he doesn't have time to process this. We see a lion on a high platform in the next panel poised to leap down onto a crowd of three men. The first two men are running and screaming for help, but the third, a guy in a green suit, matching hat, red bow tie, is standing with his arms wide beneath the lion like he's trying to commit suicide by mauling. And the lion's about to give him what he wants. It leaps. But that can't happen. Spidey swings in on a web line, mounting the lion from behind, screaming he's never ridden anything like this before, but there's always a first time. He wraps the lion in his leg before dropping it into a net held by the police in the next panel. One of the police officers thanks Spider-Man, saying they've had their hands full with all of the escaped beasts. Spidey lands in a final panel after releasing the lion in front of a trio of fleeing men, screaming, Escaped beast? That means there's more? Uh-oh, here's another one now! As a large black bear advances toward him on its hind legs, I imagine these animals all hopped onto the five train from the Bronx Zoo, the bear probably hopped the train, and rode into the because city to wreak havoc. So 13 opens to Spidey leaping straight up into the air, shouting, There, big fella! That webbing around your jaws and your claws will keep you harmless till the police put you back where you belong! As he webs the maw of the bear shut to go along with its already webbed up paws. Spidey leaps onto a sheer wall next, climbing up to meet a large brown gorilla perched on a ledge of the building above him. Octopus has caused chaos with these freed animals. Spidey calls the gorilla fuzzy and says he'll be right with him. But the gorilla is channeling his King Kong energy and won't wait for action. It leaps down at Spidey in the next panel, causing the webhead to lose his balance and fall from the sheer wall. Spidey grabs a flagpole on his way down in an underhand <laughs> grip and spinning around it rapidly says, if he's ever president, he's going to make flagpole day a national holiday. The gorilla lands on the flagpole and lumbers towards Spider-Man, whose right foot is already backed up against the edge of the pole as he screams. Say, little friend, you've got this backwards. I'm the one who's supposed to be chasing you before doing a corkscrew flip from the edge of the flagpole and over the gorilla's outstretched hands. Put another page of me gushing on the record book. This is a beautiful corkscrew flip. Ditko, working. And Spidey slipped out of the way and the gorilla's fallen off of the edge. Spidey webs up the falling gorilla to open page 14, hoping his web can hold until the police get a net under the impersonation calm. The next panel we see the webbing has held as a group of people stand around while the gorilla is lowered onto the police net. The officer holding the net stage right says, Well, that's the last of them. Boy, that Spider-Man is a poor man's Frank Buck. Frank, bring him back alive, Buck was a famous American hunter, author, actor, director, and producer. But all of these titles were secondary to him being America's foremost animal collector. A title that saw him bring well over 100,000 live specimens back to the United States for zoos and circuses. My man was the crocodile hunter before the crocodile hunter. Nigel Thornberry before Nigel Thornberry. So Spidey could have a career in the catch and trap life if he wanted, but Spidey can't pursue it now. The second cop says the animals are all accounted for, but one, Dr. Octopus, is still on the loose. And speaking of Dr. Octopus. Octopus is rampaging through Midtown in a beautiful panel. In the foreground, we see a police officer with his hands raised screaming at the frightened and fleeing crowd to get back and stay clear that the police will handle this. A guy in an SJB colored suit, matching hat, tan tie, and maroon shoes, those are some fancy shoes, screams that Dr. Octopus is flipping cars like they're made of balsa wood as he sprints away from the scene looking over his shoulder. And the scene, ah, right fist raised as usual, is hovering above the ground in the middle of the street on the twos as the ones lift the lime green car by its bumper like, well, balsa wood. 
the whole time, Ock is screaming. I won't stop until I find Spider-Man. Do you hear me? Bring me Spider-Man. He wants his five minutes with the webhead or he's going to turn this city upside down. Ock scales a wall next and stopping behind a building sign that reads Leaded Ink, grabs the sign with the ones and screaming Spider-Man better show up soon, pushes the signage from its brackets in the building towards the street below. There's a crowd of at least 30 people below. Ock is back on his murder game. But suddenly, a deceptively strong web streaks out towards the falling sign and... We see a large spider's web snag the signage before it can crash to the ground as Spidey screams from off panel that this webbing will hold the sign until the police arrive. We see that everybody's waiting for this fight to jump off. 15 opens with Jameson and Betty watching from inside JJ's corner office through the window. And JJ is tirading. Well, wow. So Spider-Man finally came out of hiding at last. Unless it's that idiotic Peter Parker again. Betty replies, Don't say that, Mr. Jameson. It mustn't be Peter. It just mustn't. And I feel like if she knew it was Peter this time, Betty would take his head off. She's had enough of all this action-packed lifestyle. She doesn't want Pete anywhere near it. But Jameson and Betty Brand are both right. It is the real Spider-Man, and it's also Peter Parker. Although this time, nobody suspects the truth. Spidey came in working and nobody believes that could be Peter Parker now. Look how he embarrassed himself and look how that embarrassment has worked to his benefit. Never ever think that a loss is just a loss. It can always be a lesson and sometimes, like this, it can be a gift. He has separated the Peter Parker from the Spider-Man so completely that now he can operate closely as a photographer for a man who hates Spider-Man without any suspicion. This beating, those two hooks that Dr. Octopus gave him that knocked him out, they were a blessing in disguise. And he got to get some sleep. He was sick, he needed it anyway. But he's back on top, so let's get back to. Spidey lands on a water tower across from Dr. Octopus who screams Spider-Man at last as the golden liability throws down the gauntlet. All right, Octopus, you've been asking for another tangle with me, and now you're gonna get it. Translation, it's time for the showdown. And we got action. Octopus sends all four arms flying at Spider-Man, obliterating the water tower, and calling Spidey a web-shooting freak, saying this time he's gonna show our hero no mercy. And Spidey replies, what do you mean this time? A Florence Nightingale you've never been. Florence Nightingale was a British nurse, social reformer, and statistician best known as the founder of modern nursing. Her work in the field revolutionized nursing practices, mainly in the areas of sanitation and patient care, where she spread the idea that safe and compassionate treatment of patients was just as important as the medicine they were given or surgeries that were performed on them. Her work shattered the stereotype of nursing as an undesirable profession in its time and inspired not only working in middle-class women, but even upper-class women to Spiller. pursue careers in nursing, now considered through her work to be a noble profession. Of course, that extends to men today, as I've seen plenty of male nurses. So one time for Florence Nightingale, back to. So Spidey's right, because there isn't anyone farther from who Nightingale was than Dr. Octopus. And a few stories below. We see Jameson drenched in the water from the water tower, shaking an angry fist, screaming that it has to be the real Spider-Man because Peter Parker wouldn't have the stones to soak him like this. But JJ can't fathom the degree of my friend Pete's nerves. Meanwhile, Betty says that Ock is bigger and much more vicious than ever before. She wonders what chance Spider-Man really has of defeating him. As Betty doubts, Spidey is climbing in the next panel, a large goldenrod chimney stack. And that's an awful color for a chimney stack. It's not going to hide the soot at all, but that's my worry, not Spidey's. He's thinking, those blamed arms of his make him stronger than I am. How am I going to figure out a way to defeat him once and for all? In the final panel, we see Doc Ock, 10 feet behind our hero, running up the stack in his brown constructs, screaming that Spidey has no place to run. The chase is on, and it's almost over. Spidey waits at the top of the smokestack as Ock ascends it to open 16. 
008 says, I can afford to take my time to relish this moment. You're completely trapped. And Spidey says, sure, sure. Watch this, before webbing the lip of the smokestack and jumping off the side of the web strand in his hand, screaming, Geronimo! As Ock looks on, stunned, he forgot Spidey is fearless. Good, Spidey didn't. He swings rapidly around the chimney, pinning Dr. Octopus with his ever-extending web line to the smokestack as he does, saying, Not bad for a little trap, Spider-Man, eh? But Doc Ock is the former foremost in atomic research. He knows all he has to do is make the webbing slack around him, and he'll get free. Saying he's underestimated Spidey, as he often does, he pushes away from the smokestack with his metal arm before pressing himself flat against it. The webbing goes slack and free once more. He says he won't make the mistake a second but time and resumes it. his hunt. And so, the fantastic chase begins again. And we get a beautiful panel of Spidey on agility. Best ever. My brush, please. Let me paint this picture. We got Ock standing on the edge of a brown rooftop, his arms stretched out in front of him. Between him and Spider-Man, there's a gray rooftop with a billboard on its roof. The billboard has three light fixtures mounted on its top. I'm guessing so it can be seen at nighttime. But Spidey's seen them now. He's looped the first pole, leapt to the third, and released it, looping around the second pole, flies forward, corkscrews in the air, and grabs a steel pole jutting out of the side of a building. Shades of Simone Biles on page 16. I like it. Octopus, gripping the side of a building with his right tentacles, sends the left chasing Spidey, who leapfrogs the chimney to avoid them. Octopus says Spidey may be more agile, the most agile, but Octopus can cover more ground and he's tireless. Spidey replies, Guess you're right, Oc. If all your boasting doesn't tire you out, I guess nothing will. Seventeen opens to Spidey on the chimney on one foot as Octopus swings around the water tower using R1 to cut him off. The remaining three arms, of course, barreling towards the webhead. Oc says he'll prove he can do more than boast and cracks the webhead with an L1 hook, sending him falling backwards from the chimney. Riddle me this, Jackman. Yeah? What's Spidey's agility on? That's easy. Best ever. Spidey lands into a handstand in the next panel as Ox arms give chase, and realizing he's got nowhere to go but down, Spidey plunges headfirst into the air shaft in the next panel, thinking, It's a long chance, but maybe I can get out of his reach in this air shaft. Then I'll figure out a new plan of attack and take the offensive. In free fall now, Spidey webs the opening to the air shaft, hoping Octopus didn't see him. But Octopus did. We see his metal arms swarming above the mouth of the shaft. And Spidey thinks his plan is worthless, that he blew it before he remembers who he is. Lowering himself further into the shaft, he stretches the webbing he's holding in his hands until the tension is exactly right, before rocketing up through the air shaft in the final panel, screaming, Gangway, Doc Ock! Spidey shoots out of the shaft to open 18, lunging towards Octopus and grabbing the man around the collar. Ock screams, What the? And Spidey replies, Huh, I thought I'd catch you off guard. Well, buddy boy, you're not fighting a weak imitation of Spider-Man now. This time, you're facing the real thing before landing in the next panel and judo-tossing Dr. Octopus over his shoulder, telling 008 that as long as he can be kept off balance, his arms won't do him any good. In the next panel, Spidey, bad, he's in it. He screams, and you know something? There's still no substitute for a good old-fashioned punch in the jaw. Now, is there? Before leaping the 10 feet between him and his nemesis easily and cracking Octopus in the jaw with a hard right. The only reason Oct doesn't fall flat on his back the ones, grabbing a nearby ledge and the floor, hold him up horizontally. Insult to injury, as Spidey cracks Ock across the jaw, he says, Don't just lie there. Answer me. Spidey's not having it. You kidnapped Betty, beat the stuffing out of me in front of my lady and my boss and the police, and violated one of the world's greatest zoos. So Spidey wants answers and he's got two fists and you know the rule. He swung him because he had him. Octopus from his knees is not done. His tentacles curling in front of him at Spidey. He says the webhead's only got two arms. He's got six. So Spidey was licked from the start. 
Spidey leaping straight up to avoid R2 has to land quickly on his right foot, leaning backwards to avoid the remaining three arms still closing in on him. But Spidey's tired of this dance, and he lunges through the arms, both hands in front of him, fingers wide to open page 19. Octopus says it's a good try, but calls Spidey an ineffectual upstart and says that ain't quite good enough, grabbing Spidey by the neck with his fleshy hands. This is the first time since this battle started that Octopus has used his real hands for anything. Spidey, R1 in his right hand, L2 in his left, has no way to guard against Dr. Octopus as they dance dangerously on the ledge of a rooftop. Spidey's left leg out in front of him, his right pressed up against the edge. And Op, sensing the tide turning, starts talking his smack. I don't have to move as quickly as you do. With six arms at my disposal, I can afford to take my time. I always get what I reach for. On the street below, in a red negative space, crowd reaction shot. We've got a man in the background, brown hat. He's looking up in silent worry. A man in a green horizontally striped blazer and blue fedora. A blonde woman in a purple blouse, her hands up to her mouth as she stares up with her mouth wide open. And a gray-haired guy in a blue blazer and green tie with a brown hat. He is in open mouth astonishment right now. All of these people are in a state of shock, but gray-haired with the blue blazer screams, Look, Dr. Octopus is trying to push Spider-Man off the edge of that roof. And blue fedora chimes in. He's doing it. Spider-Man is toppling. Wait. He's holding on to Octopus. They're both falling. Before Spidey and Dr. Octopus crash onto a scaffold below. Spidey starts to say he was willing to go over the side because of his sharper reflexes. But before he can finish, Ox screams, Reflexes, bah! Shout out to what good will they do now? The scaffold cable just snapped. As the left cable of the scaffold snaps, the momentum of the platform is crashing through a nearby skylight. In the final panel, we see the Golden Liability and 008 have landed in an abandoned sculptor's studio. Maybe Alicia Masters, on-again, off-again girlfriend to none other than Benji Grimm, the ever-loving blue-eyed thing. Sidebar, I just read the thing number one that's being written by the great Walter Mosley, the man who gave the world Easy Rollins and Devil in a Blue Dress, and it's shaping up to be my favorite type of thing tale already. Check it out if you can. Back to. So Spidey hits the floor of Alicia Masters' abandoned studio and all around him, we see sculptures. We see a giant gladiator holding a shield and sword, a large stone head wearing a stoic expression, and a life-size model of an angel, its wings spread wide, dressed in a tunic. What can't Steve Ditko draw doesn't exist. But P has no time to marvel at the art, sculptures or otherwise. Octopus has landed on the twos, and he is relentless. He sends L1 after the webhead, who landing huh. in his hands, throws his feet together and backflips at the same time, kicking the hand racing towards him away. As if the stakes weren't already sky high on the ground below, the two combatants knocked over a bottle of cleaning fluid and a fire begins to rage between the two on the floor of the sculptor's studio. With Octopus giving chase, Spidey leaps to the arm of the giant gladiator and swinging around the arm to the gladiator's back, calls Octopus a fool for not trying to escape the fire as smoke begins to fill the air. But Octopus, despite eight appendages, is now singular in his focus. He screams, This building is deserted. It's just you and me now. Only one of us will survive. Oc doesn't care if he dies, and he cares even less if Spidey does. The giant stone head, held up on a wooden platform, now engulfed in fire, crashes onto the floor between the two combatants. And Spidey is the bravest, but he's not a fool. He says, are you so filled with hate that you're willing to die rather than stop our battle? I can escape through any window, but you'll be trapped by some falling sculpture. But Ox refusing to listen. He tells Spidey he's finishing this now. But the fates have another idea. The wooden floor beneath the gladiator statue is weakened from the heat, and it gives way, and the gladiator statue topples forward, landing on Dr. Octopus and pinning the man beneath it from the waist down. Ox screams that he can't lift it, and he's trapped. 
Next panel, Spidey races towards Ock to help, saying he'll get him out. The floor begins collapsing around him as Dr. Octopus screams for help. We get a beautiful panel of Spidey throwing his hands up as flames rise, roaring in front of him. He thinks, can't get to him. Flames leaping too high, too high. Can't get through. And he's right. These flames are now towering over him. There is no way for Spidey to be heroic and get to this man. And Spidey's got his own problem. His back is against the wall in the final panel. Flames creeping towards him. And Spidey says, what's the matter with you? I've been so worried about Doc Ock, I forgot about myself. This is no better roses for me either. How do I get out of here? The self-preservation is real. Spidey tried, but I don't think he's willing to die trying for a man who may die from trying to kill him. Makes sense? 21 open and Spidey's getting science. He get a close up of his hands as he tries to use his weapon, but they give him the Dr. No treatment and he realizes he's empty. He reaches into his utility belt and we get a great close up of the sign of the spider at the center of his belt, the camera beside it to the left, and the web cartridge holder. He grabs two web cartridges as the flames creep closer to him and says he could change his shooters in his sleep at this point. Locked and loaded, he screams here goes and starts spinning webs. Using his amazing spider web like a virtuoso, playing out just the right amount of fluid at just the right split second, Spider-Man manages to create a flame-proof umbrella for his head, plus some sections of webbing to use as stepping stones for his racing feet. And we see Spidey moving along web platforms he's created on the burning floor, his upper body shielded by the umbrella, his right hand poking from beneath it as he creates his next stepping pad. He bursts through the window of the studio on the final panel towards the building opposite, screaming, made it! I'll cling to the wall of this building next door and swing to safety from here! Spidey web swings onto page 22 as fire engines tear up the street towards the blaze, and he's wondering if they can get to Doc Ock in time. Reaching the street, Spider-Man ducks into a nearby doorway, emerging seconds later as our teenage friend, Peter Parker. My friend Pete, back on the scene. We see Pete enter a crowd of Liz and Flash Thompson. Liz says she was looking for Pete and he missed all the excitement. She only knew. Flash, jerking his thumb behind him, tells Pete to get lost because 008 is still at large and Pete might faint if he sees him. Flash is jealous of the attention Pete's getting from Liz, so I think it's so much for the budding friendship I mentioned two episodes ago. And it's not stressing Pete at all. He's chilling. He says, Why don't you slow the back to the rock you crawl out from under Flash? Like, don't be mad at me. She chose. You mad? You mad at me? Because she chose? You gotta take that up with Liz, fella. Or, even better, you let her live her life and make her decisions, and you walk it off. There's plenty of fish in the sea. Go get your fishing pole. Get back to work. Back to. The next panel, we see a fireman escorting a bruised and beaten octopus from the burning building as the crowd looks on behind the police line. The firefighter wants no parts of Doc Ock, handing him over to a nearby police officer. I know it's Joe because the cop says, Well, we do. We've been itching to get our hands on this character. The next panel, as Pete and the gang look on, we see Joe and Tomas leading the beaten and disgraced villain away. Tomas says, All right, mister, keep moving. We got a nice cozy cell for you to recuperate in. And Doc Ock, his head down, his fleshy hands handcuffed in front of him, replies, Spider-Man didn't beat me. It was the fire. If not for the fire, everything would have been different. And you know Joe has two cents to give. He says, Sure, sure. Every time you've met Spider-Man, he stopped you cold. But next time will be different. We know. Translation? We don't believe you. You need more people. The next panel, we see Liz leaning towards Pete. One hand on his shoulder, one hand on his chest, covering the knot in his tie. That's an affectionate placement of a hand, I gotta say. And she says, Now then, Peter, what I wanted to ask you was, I'm having a party tonight and... But Pete is long over Liz. He's got a girl that loves him for who he is, and that's who gets his attention right now. He replies, Sorry, Liz. No can do. I've got a thing with a certain little brunette tonight, even though she may not know it yet. And walking away from her and Flash in the next panel, he keeps going. I'm sure Flash will be happy to go instead of me. 
Although I know how boring it must be to have to use all those one-syllable words when you talk to him. Anyway, you deserve each other. For context, Pete has been crushing on Liz since ASM number one. And now, one year later, he is over her. It took him a whole year in the love of someone who genuinely loved him for who he was. And he's going to meet the great Betty Brant and try to take her out tonight. Sorry, Liz. You had your shot. I asked you out. You told me not to call you again. You said you were waiting for Spider-Man and you didn't want me to tie up your line. Do you remember that? Because I remember it. So I'm going to go holler at my baby Betty and you, uh, you take it easy. Remember, one syllable words for the dumb head. That's two, so don't even use that. Flash shakes an angry fist, calling Pete crummy, but Liz, looking over her shoulder at the back of the Golden Rock kid, cuts him off. She says, Don't say it, Flash. We rated that. After the way we've always treated Peter. At least Liz took this as a lesson to learn. And that's good, because Flash was cruising for another bruising. What were you gonna do, run up on Pete? Get knocked out in the street? Say it was an accident again? Just let things go, Flash. Let it go. And later that night, we see Pete in his bedroom in his SJB suit, his back to us, the walls around him blanketed in the sign of the spider. As he says he's lucky he had the automatic shutter of his camera on. He got great pics of Doc Ock, and JJ paid him a chunk of dough for them. He ends with, Yes, sirree, things are sure looking up for my favorite couple of guys. Namely, me. Pete is feeling himself and he's got the win. Happy ending, you love to see it. And the issue closes with a caption box beneath his feet. Fooled you, eh? See, we don't always have unhappy endings. Like anyone else, our web-spinning hero has his ups and downs. But if he thinks things are going to stay rosy, it's a good thing he doesn't suspect what's in store for him next-ish. See you then. And we're out. Me and my best friend Pete. Old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns. Kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete.